Well, greetings, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Hard News on Friday night from DBS Radio Station 1. We're so grateful that you join us here tonight, and we'd like to take a few moments to just <clears throat> set the tone for the evening and go into our heart space. So let's take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, slowly, gently. Let go of that dross of the day. And go into that heart space. Gather with your guides and guardians. Your angel teams, your healing teams. Your ancestors. Your totems. And when you like to journey with that kidney drum list. And there's a council fire. You can hear that calling drum, calling us to gather around that council fire. So let's do that in that virtual way that we know how to do. Make a circle around that council fire. <clears throat> and we join as one. And let us call in those seven galactic directions in that Mayan tradition. wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us, so that we may see things clearly. And we welcome from the north, the house of night. May wisdom mature among us, so that we may <clears throat> see everything from within. Bless us. 
Then we might end war. And we welcome from the central source of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. May everything be recognized as the light of mutual love. I am Hunaku, even Maya, even the host. I am Hunaku, even Maya, even the host. I am Hunaku, even Maya, even the host. All hail the harmony, combined in the air. Homotakuya, in Ash, Alakir. So just stay where that drumbeat took you. If we take a few moments to look at the Mayan record of days for today and for the week ahead. So today is the 13 Maluk, the red cosmic moon. And so that's a very feminine day, the moon being feminine and the 13 number being feminine. Um, So... And it's also kin number 169, and it's also Rama's birthday today. So happy birthday, Rama. And so <clears throat> let's look at this this moon energy. It's purified, flow, universal water. And the 13 tones transcend, presence, endure are its three key words. So here's the affirmation of the mantra for today. I endure in order to purify transcending flow. I seal the process of universal water with the cosmic tone of presence. I am guided by the power of space, which is the Skywalker then. And the occult guide today is the human, Ed. The ally today is the white dog, and the challenge teacher today is the blue storm. <clears throat> so it's a very feminine, fluid day, and the goddess rises in all her glory, cosmic glory on this day. <clears throat> so, um, yay. <laughs> and then uh, let's take a look at that a little closer. We look, the moon. The blue moon, I mean the red moon, is an artist aspect, and it's about that wise use of rational mind. It's about accepting spirit's direction. So listen carefully and and embrace these gifts of that contact with spirit. Remembering what we came here to do and embracing universal mind is our mind. So telepathy is the gift. So let's let go of any insensitivity any attachment to omens or any self-doubt as we embrace these energies on this day. And then moving on to tomorrow, Saturday. And we are in the unlucky days, they call it. I don't claim that. (laughs) Just saying. In the Mayan tradition, the five days before the day out of time are called the unlucky days. It is the ending of the 13-moon calendar, which ends on Monday. So, <clears throat> here we go. Tomorrow, Saturday, is Ock, the dog, 
which is an artist aspect, and it's about unconditional love and healing the pain of the past. And it's so it's the it's the white magnetic dog day, and so it's interesting. We are in the dog days in the in the, in our calendar, um, which will last until we get to August. And so, so anyway, so the guidance for the wave of the dog is 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 that it is a period of sacrifice that's that unconditional love and, and the healing the pain of the past and, and as we embrace these gifts of that contact with our spirit guides our awareness of destiny awareness of our past lives and our loyalty to humankind so we have this way for the next 13 days in which we will do all that and that will bring us through with NASA which is the beginning of the <clears throat> fall season and the harvest season in the, the first harvest and that'll be on the first and, and it takes us through the day out of time which will be on Tuesday <clears throat> so we're we're traveling with this um, period of sacrifice and through these energies so let's let go of any fears or any unwise use of anger as we embrace this dog week or Zibuya way spell in this day on Saturday when it begins. Um, and then <clears throat> going on to Sunday, it's a two two one, so it's the blue lunar monkey. And uh, <clears throat> that monkey energy is another artist aspect. So it's about balancing work and play and paying attention to clarity of mind. And also making those wise choices. <laughs> in that wise use of magical artistry that, that the monkey gives us. So let's embrace these gifts of innocence, spontaneity, that ability to play and laugh and make jokes. <laughs> As we let go of any insensitivity or jadedness or any resistance to compassion or any mistrust as we embrace these energies on Sunday, <clears throat> then moving on to Monday, it's the three of the yellow electric human. And um, <clears throat> that that human energy, the healing aspect. So we're working with our enlightenment of humankind. We're activating cosmic consciousness and we're tuning to spirit with this energy. So we embrace the gifts of being that human servant warrior. We embrace our abundance and our contact with other dimensions. So let's let go of any dependence on the analytical mind as we work with these energies on Monday. The yellow electric human and that electric toe, that's that activation. So we're activating these gifts. <clears throat> Being a human until <laughs> on Tuesday. And so it also completes the 13 moon calendar. So that's the, the end of it. And the new year doesn't start until the Sirius rises in the east <laughs> in the morning sky on t on Wednesday. So Tuesday is the day out of time. And <clears throat> that's that extra day, and that's where they stick it into this, this year. It is the red self-existent Skywalker. And it's also a portal day, so we've got a galactic activation day as well, here as well. So the day out of time is 
is uh, extra dimensional this year. It's a warrior aspect, the Skywalker is. And it's about our focus and, and striving towards self illumination. It's about clarity. So let's embrace a gift of strength. The Skywalker has that strength and, and that ability to bend dimensions. And because it's the portal day, it's going to be extra dimensional. So let's bend a few of those as we let go of any resistance to faith or, or any belief in aloneness. So <clears throat> that's the day out of time. And then on Wednesday, we begin the new year of the mind calendar or record of days. It's not a calendar. It is a record of days. And so this, um, this new year is on the five ish. So, so it's the white overtone magician. The overtone is that activating spot, that top of the pyramid that um, it, all the other corners respond to, <laughs> activates it. In the cash technology, we call that a reactor when we put that piece there. So uh, <laughs> it's, the, it's the reactor piece. Um, it's the engine. And uh, what else? The, the five tone. Okay, it's the, that warrior. No, where are we? Here we are. The magician. It's a visionary aspect. And uh, we're working with the illumination for others. And we're working with clarity of mind and purpose. And we're embracing the gift of being that shaman that, with that jaguar medicine, working with integrity, working in accordance with the divine will. As we let go of any control or personal power issues or any manipulation, we embrace these energies. And so as it is the new year, it's marked by the rise of Sirius in the morning sky. Um... And so that's really indicating the uh, the, the, the galactic orientation of this record of days. It's showing you that it's related to Sirius and its path around the around <laughs> and our path around the, the the sun in that path, so that we're in the alignment each year on this day, the 26th of July. Uh, and we begin this new year in the Mayan world uh, with this count of days. So then moving on to Thursday, uh, uh, Wednesday, no, Thursday, <laughs> it's the sixth man, the blue rhythmic eagle. And so that's that sixth tone of the rhythmic tone is activation there. The three, six, and nine are all activating. So you know where Tesla got his vision from. There's, he called them the organic numbers. Um, <clears throat> so this is a visionary aspect with the eagle energy and it's about our commitment to serve it. It's about moving consciousness to source and it's about reconnecting with all creation. And we see that big picture and we see the minute details in all of it. So um, let's work with these gifts of independence and the the belief in ourselves as we let go of any feelings of despair or any dissociation and let go of the illusion of separateness with this energy. 
So that's the New Year. Then moving on to Thursday, I don't know, that is, <laughs> that's not the New Year. That's the 5 H. So this is Thursday. And then Friday, we have another um, portal day. Uh, or Galactic Activation Day. So it's a seven key, the Yellow Resonant Warrior on Friday. And um, so we're working with the Warrior and which is asking us to trust in our journey and bring awareness of right action. So we embrace these gifts of that communication with the divine and that access to cosmic consciousness. So let's let go of any limitation, any restriction, or any hesitation as we embrace these energies on Friday. And we'll talk about it some more next Friday when we get back. So that's the week ahead. We get to go through the quote-unquote unlucky day, unless it's your birthday. It makes it an extra special birthday if your birthday falls in one of these days. And uh, <clears throat> and then, of course, the day out of time on Tuesday and the new year begins and the new calendar begins. The 28-day moon calendar begins on um, Wednesday as well. So... Day one of that. And I want to take a few moments to change my hat and talk about the housekeeping. As we are a listener-supported radio program, it's each of us that make it happen. And this week, BBS Radio is getting covered by that check that's coming in the mail. And so we don't think about that. We just need to concentrate on assisting Tara and Lama. So I'm going to talk to you about how to do that. Uh, and what they need. They they need a print cartridge, and that's $58. And I imagine they need that right away. Um, <laughs> that's usually when you find out you need one. Um, and then they have three bills that are coming up, um, and they total $270. It's $120 for the electric, $15 for the gas, $134 for the Internet. So $270 will cover those three bills. And they also have a card, the card debt they're paying off is $1,200, and um, that needs to be be paid as soon as possible. And then the car registration has to happen within the next 30 days, and that's $60 for that. So there you go. It's 270 and 60 is 330 and another 60 for the print cartridge, 390 uh, so, yeah, not too bad, not too bad, and it's Ron's birthday. Let's get generous and make sure he gets that print cartridge anyway. <laughs> That'd be a good birthday gift. And uh, and get that uh, card that paid down would be awesome as well. So it's a good opportunity to do that, get something towards that. Um, that and that's $1,200, so that's the biggie in there for sure. And it's important to get take care of that. So thank you for taking that action. Here's how we do it. We go to the web address to access Rama's PayPal account or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. So the web address is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, you'll see that menu grid. Click on that. And as that menu drops down, you'll find the donate link right near the bottom of that list. Click on that. That takes you to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account where you can make that donation in any amount. And if you 
know how to look at that and put in the right things. You want a gift. If you've been doing it, you, it shows right up, but you can access that friends and family right there. Um, on Ramas, he said there was a heart there that uh, was for that friends and family option. Um, my experience was different, but everybody has their own. But it's pretty repetitive. Once you do it, you're getting there. So let's make it a habit. <laughs> it's easy. And so the, you need to enter the the uh, email address for the for doing the friends option, and that email address is Koran K O R A N nine 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 at hotmail dot com, and that's how that works. So either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for your contributions. Thank you so much. As you're sending something, please let Rama know his mailing address. Or his email address is Koran K O R A N nine 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 at Comcast dot net. And then, as you needed his physical address, is Rom D Berkowitz. In case you're going to hand deliver him some money, <laughs> the post office. Rom D Berkowitz R A M D Berkowitz B E R K O W I T Z. Post office box two eight zero. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. And I'll say it again. <laughs> Post Office Box 280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. They have all the information. And uh, so, so much gratitude to all of you doing it together like we do it makes it happen. So, lots of gratitude for. Paying it forward like that, may your gifts be returned tenfold and more. And yeah, and may we keep meeting this way like we do, the family that we are by this time, 13 years, I think. So 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Um, and that's it. So yeah. I can pass this talking stick. Oh, oh. my gosh. Look at this talking stick. <laughs> it's got balloons. <laughs> it's a funny talk. This is for you, Ron. It's, got, it's a birthday talking stick, and it's got balloons all over it, and everybody's got <laughs> cake and ice cream on their faces. <laughs> They're all the little people. They're there, dwarves and, and menahoonies. You know, all little people, lots of feathers and fairies, and the fair, the fairies are having have a time of it. They're, they're celebrating. they got streamers now. So greetings, Tar and Rama. Here comes this talking stick before it gets heavy. Thank you, Carol. I can't, Ray Bird. I'm sorry. Thank you, Ray Bird. I am so grateful. We are so grateful. Caroline got, got Rama a card, and on the front of the card, it says, I see cake in your future. <laughs> and then you said what you said about all these people with cake all over their faces. <laughs> well, there you go. You know, I'm, I'm only just seeing what I'm seeing. So. <laughs> it's Caroline's fault. <laughs> yes, I was um, kind of above Santa Fe today a little bit going towards the ski basin and 
five deer showed up and three crows. And I gave them water and a little food and uh, thanked them for their presence. And so did they sing happy birthday to you? <laughs> in their own way, yeah. They were like just saying, you know, we, we thank you for your company to come and see us. Oh, they know when you're coming because you got food. Yes, I'm the food bag. <laughs> they're they're uh, hot with it. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, I got a message from the King of Swords today, and he wished me a happy birthday. And he's actually 73. And uh, he doesn't look a day over 50. That's true. And uh, I, you know, I am walking in the man's shoes, as it's been said. <sighs> the intensity of what's going on on the planet today is um, Tanya Gabrielle is talking about a 28-28 with the numerology and Pluto's coming into focus, and I could just keep seeing every day, and the king is pointing it out, how Pluto, the king of the underworld, is digging up centuries and centuries of stuff for it to be clean, clear, criminal-free, as that saying goes, and... Um, I keep remembering those words that somebody told me a while back, like in 2006, when all said and done, there might be 64 or 65 good members of Congress left, because the rest, oh my God, they, you know, the, the list of crimes uh, rival Lex Luthor, Donald Trump, and then some. And it's not a pretty picture. The list of whose crimes? Members of Congress who all participated in all kinds of activities that dance around the deep state, Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, and other stories about fake alien invasions and dark money and deals with Opus Dei and other folks that not necessarily are our friends. War is over. War is over as we wanted, like John Lennon and Yoko said. I mean, the deep state started that Ukraine war. There was no reason to do it whatsoever. No. And, this and Rama is, made it clear, you didn't at the beginning, but you made it clear in retrospect that that wasn't the real Putin that ordered the war. That was the fake no. Putin. That was our deep state that ordered the war. Yeah. And made the world think it was Russia. And today, a pro-Russian blogger, I forgot his name, was arrested because he was trashing Putin, the fake Putin, 
And uh, he was like making some very bold statements publicly. Did he know what he was doing? No. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. He knew do- it was a fake Putin? No, he didn't know it was a fake Putin. Then but- he didn't know what he was doing. Okay. But he was trashing him and he got arrested and he's facing five years in jail in Russia. Ooh, yuck. Yeah. And that guy, Alex Navalier, is facing 20 years in jail in Russia. And now what? Alex Navalier is a asset of the MI5, MI6. Absolutely. The story goes deeper. And the 13 families know, you know, like the king told me, uh, the flash, the energy's coming in from the sun. Whatever they are trying to hide, they can't anymore because the sun is making it known in the sense as the energies get higher. Like the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness, love, compassion, even for Donald Trump and the rest of these folks. And it's... How we pass this test. That's our biggest cliffhanger. I'm speaking for myself as well as whoever may else be in the mix. Because we all had a role to play in this. And we said, yeah, we'll volunteer right to the completion of this story. And it never ends. <laughs> the, I'm just saying we're moving fully into this Sat Yuga, 100,000 years of peace. And um, I intend to stick around. I passed this talking stick. Who are you passing it to? You. Oh. <laughs> I could pass it to a Roll Ray. Um, not quite yet. Not quite yet. I'll just read exactly what. The report was for today. How's that? Okay. And this has not happened for years. The first line, it says, I received a text message from the King of Swords <laughs> at 12.09 p.m. early this afternoon. And you said it's been years that he directly yeah. with you. And so he said to me, Lord Rama, happy birthday. <laughs> There are many things going on. All of them are about restoring heaven on earth. War is over. Yes, please. The biggest thing I can tell you at this moment is about the ongoing solar flares and the upliftment of this reality. This is a huge story. And... It is about Dr. Greer's latest movie, The Lost Century. We're thinking of renting it. You might not be able to see it, Mm. but we can listen. I know there's plenty. If that's going out in the theaters, it would be really good to hear what the rest of the people are going to hear. This is, you know, the biggest thing right now, and it's not a fairy tale or a fantasy 
the free energy like Tesla talked about. It is the ether, the quantum field. Nassim has a new video out talking about this stuff oh. and his new, you know, current papers on the quantum field and how to tap into the quantum field because it is us and we are it and I don't know if I even want to call it it It, how long is that new video I gotta go look I'm not sure it's not coming out to your birthday August 5th Oh, I see. Happy birthday, Tara. Yeah. Oh, okay. <coughs> so that's just a, a a fore prediction of what's to come. Yeah. We still this, can check on how long it's going to be. This is the biggest thing. I've been waiting to hear from him for so long. Because we don't need to continue to boil water with nuclear fuel rods no. and poison the planet. That. You know, yeah, and risk a meltdown for everybody living around it. No, like uh, what was that in Pennsylvania? What was the name of that meltdown? Three Mile Island. Oh yeah. Ah. What a movie! <laughs> All the babies born, they got totally radioactivated. Ah. And, and ah. this is the time because all the messages are saying. You know, call us in, and the galactic family is here. We can change this, like Patty has been teaching us for years. And, you know, they kind of took her off of YouTube. Yeah, something about the music, so they yeah. took her off the platform. And we just saw a blaze of violet fire, so she'll she'll be back. I'm not yes. sure how that's going to work itself out, but that's one determined uh, goddess. Goddess. <laughs> yes. I, I wouldn't want to get in her face. No. Anyway, so uh, we are in a time where our thoughts can become physical manifestations. Our biggest test is to teach only love. These are not my words. These are the words from the Admiral Sananda Kumara. See you in the light of the most radiant ones. Nam, namaste. Blaze the violet fire. And let's play the words of Aurora Ray. Okay. What's it called, Rama? Celestial blessings, Pleiadians, energy update. Here we go. Celestial blessings, Pleiadians, energy update. Pleiadians are a highly advanced civilization of light beings that have been here on Earth for many thousands of years. Their work is not only to help us on our Earth plane, but it's also a part of the bigger picture that includes our higher dimensions. They have a plan for us, and they're here to guide us through it. Pleiadians are often referred to as the angels by humans who are not fully aware of their existence. They have come to Earth in order to help us evolve and become more conscious beings. The Pleiadians are currently entering a new era. A pure light frequency has been activated on our planet Earth through the opening of a new multi-dimensional time frame. 
To comprehend this new time frame and its implications for the human race, it is necessary to understand that in the past, when we were at a lower frequency, our world was ruled by fear and separation. It is important that we begin to understand these things and then take action in order to move forward on our journey toward completion. The Pleiadians will soon reveal to us who we are as a species and what we must do to realize our full potential and play our part on the Earth plane. They are the ones who possess the secret key to our self-realization process and further awakening. It will activate the revelations of understanding and knowledge to be given to all those who are seekers of truth, information that will help us to understand this transition and the role we need to play to fully open ourselves to our magnificence. Shortly, a series of blessed revelations will align us with a deeper natural aspect of our own humanness and spirituality. The quantum shift in consciousness that is taking place on this planet is so huge that it will transform us into beings who have access to all kinds of information and understanding that we have never had before. The Pleiadian Council of Light has been very busy in recent months, working with their star siblings and other extraterrestrial groups on various projects that will help us move forward in this most important time for humanity. The Pleiadian Council of Light has called upon all people on Earth to open their hearts and minds to higher vibrations and higher consciousness. They have agreed upon one major mission, to help humanity awaken fully so that we may live at our peak potential as spiritual beings rather than simply as physical beings. This means that every human being must consciously choose their life path, what they want from life, what they want to experience through life, and how they want their lives to unfold. The Pleiadian message is a call for all beings living on Earth at this time, whether we are aware of it or not, to wake up from our slumber and take responsibility for our actions. We are being asked by the Pleiadians to prepare for ascension and open up spiritually so that we can connect with our heart's desires. This also includes aligning ourselves with the divine feminine energies so that we can connect with source energy, God, or source within ourselves. This process is one of transformation, which is accomplished by awakening our inner self and raising our consciousness as far as possible through meditation, contemplation, and prayer. It is a process that requires time, patience, and persistence. The Pleiadians hold the key to our personal empowerment healing, enlightenment, and spiritual evolution. They have offered us a map so we can find these treasures within ourselves, but they cannot do all the work for us. We must do it ourselves. It requires giving up old ideas about yourself, others, and life itself, if you want the true transformation to happen. They know how you can best use your talents, gifts, abilities, and personal strengths in service to others. They also have access to all that is going on in your life, as well as what has gone before, so they can help you make sense of it all. They are your guides through this period when there will be many changes taking place on many levels. They want you to know that they care deeply about each one of us here on Earth because they are part of this planet too. They want us all to experience what we need most at this time so we can heal our souls, bodies, and hearts. The Pleiadian message is giving us a chance to move into a new way of being. It's about bringing our past experiences, how we've been conditioned, 
and our diversity of opinions to the surface. They are encouraging us to stop denying our feelings and beliefs that seem controversial and to embrace the truth in all of them. That is the beginning of transformation and it's also the beginning of a connection with something greater than ourselves. While there is still much information that we need to gather to help us better understand the nature of this transition, it seems clear that our awakening process is well underway. According to the Pleiadians, our complex world drama lies within a time continuum that involves linear time and space as we know it. We must be aware of this fact so we can chart a path through it and have positive outcomes on all levels, from our health and well-being to our interpersonal relationships to our political and environmental affairs. Ultimately, there are no limits to the level of consciousness that we can reach. New expansive levels of awareness will aid us in being a part of the creation of a new paradigm. The power to create our own reality and overcome our limitations lies within us. Through meditation and compassion, each of us can find our place as co-creators in this new concept of life. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho! This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. say that what they are sharing with us is about this transfiguration that's happening right now and it's amazing to behold each and every moment um, I just see it with the animals in the simple way I know how to put it they are asking for us to connect with them in so many ways as the ascension is going on. It, it is, <laughs> um, I could just say, it's that sound of one hand clapping the oneness and you got to embrace it in this, now moment, and that might sound ridiculous, yet it is so. Um, the numbers for the conference call are 720-716-7301, and the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. See you on the call. Satnam.
precious rose hearts Akasha is with you and tonight today I would like to initiate a meditation with you to discourse a meditation with you and whatever is comfortable whether your eyelids are closed or open let it be what is most natural for you I shall speak this meditation in the personal eye. I am awake. And in all my studies, my prayers, my decrees, and all sacred moments that I have turned and faced the light that is both within me and above me. A spiritual awakening is occurring deep within my being, perhaps even deeper that I may be aware. And with all of my heart, I embrace and accept and acknowledge a spiritual awakening and transformation that is taking place inside me. And I recognize that the 
before a spiritual transformation takes place in the outer world or even the physical body, that gentle awakening and transformation must first take place deep within my being. And through all causes of my life that have initiated a thirst, a hunger, a resonance, with things that speak of a spiritual nature, I have answered a call for life has been calling me home to my true self, the I am that I am. And in this great journey of awakening and transforming and all that I have discovered that is my true spiritual self, This path has guided me to a grand opportunity. And all that I have come to realize in my spiritual awakening and transformation There is a deeper presence of my beingness, the very mystery of my life, God, a very gentle and loving God that is the source of my life. It is the great I am presence and so grateful to have discovered that my true spiritual self I am is that I am and the opportunity that is before me is the gift of divine actualization to actualize into fully conscious, aware, spiritual contact. All of the I am that I have discovered is my true self. And I have discovered that this is a path of becoming. And it is a path of being raised once again. Why? Why the resurrection? Why? Because long ago, millions of years ago, My kind, the people of earth, 
lost our way. And many phrases have been spoken in attempts to understand what happened long ago when it seemed that I became separate from source. Some called it a fall from grace. The very grace of life that made me the very individualization of God, goddess, all that is. And my resurrection is the wonderful transformation of being raised back up out of this fall. And by the grace of God within me and above me, by the grace of the gentle touch of angels, by the grace of a spiritual hierarchy who have never forgotten us, even though for a time we forgot them, by an act of grace. And the grace of God that is stirred within my heart an awakening. The opportunity has come for restoration, renewal, resurrection, to be raised from out of that fall from grace. Back into that state of grace where all understandings, all comprehension followed by experience and discovery waits for me in all moments ahead. Regarding the most mystical of truths, I am that I am. This is the path that is set before me now. The path of resurrection. And in this path, I have discovered that beyond my regular daily thinking mind is a much greater mind, sometimes known as super consciousness or the Christ mind. A mind that is all-knowing, omniscient. A mind that can conceive perfection, ideas of perfection. And just as I have discovered that beyond my daily mind is a greater mind, the Christ mind, so too I have discovered beyond my heart is a very, very sacred door. It is the door to everything. Everything being my soul.
in my studies, I discovered that although throughout millions of years and hundreds of incarnations, our greater life has glorified us with the gift of life, whether in this world or above. From life, we have never been separate or disconnected. Only in our consciousness was that seeming fall from grace. My spiritual studies have availed me of the understanding of my greater mind, the Christ mind. And the understanding that beyond my heart is something greater, my soul. And as I have come to understand that the Christ mind is the mind of the divine masculine principles of our universe, the Father, that beyond my heart, the soul, the soul is the individualization of the divine feminine principle of our universe, the Holy Mother. And just as there is a bridge that has formed and is forming in my awakening, between my daily thinking mind and my higher Christ mind. There is too a door that stands between my heart and my soul. And it is the door to everything. And that is a place that can never be spoiled. It is the pure heart and womb of the Heavenly Mother, individualized, my soul. It is the greatest love of all. It is the source of genius, the soul, is the love of my greater life that can fulfill all that my greater mind conceives. My continued studies, my spiritual protocol, my prayers, my decrees, the sacred fire. All of this will continue to strengthen that bridge between my mind and my Christ mind until no bridge needs to be. And enlightenment unfolds. The two minds become one mind. The resurrection into my higher mental body is complete.
fulfilling the mental, the masculine activity of life. And yet, in my wholeness and in my quest for completeness, my studies have led me to the mystery of the heart, the healing of my heart, the opening of all mystical chambers of my heart, the resurrection of the first element of my heart, the resurrection of my own God flame within my heart. And finally, a lantern of light that has gathered around my heart flame to amplify the light and love of my heart. And a lantern that one day soon shall reveal to me that door, the door that stands between my heart and my soul, the door to everything. That door is presently locked. For the heart is the greatest protector of the mother's presence, the soul. And only when no wounds and hurts and racial beliefs only when my heart is so pure and by divine intervention and that lantern of light no longer allows the shadows of the world to touch the purity of my heart. Then there is a magic presence that abides too within my heart. It is the master within. And that master has the key. The key that will one day unlock the door to everything. My soul. This is the journey that I am upon, the path of resurrection, being raised that Christ, the God I am presence, may express through this life I have been given through the Christ mind. And the door to everything, my soul opening. And the finest and greatest mystery of my life, the bride and the groom are reunited. 
the Christ mind, the soul. And as they greet each other within my awareness and consciousness, my beingness, my physical heart becomes the great caretaker that begins with the sacred fire to transmute the substance of my physical body to be that perfect temple individualization of God, goddess, all that is, the I am that I am in the fullness of my resurrection takes place. My own magical moment in the Garden of Gethsemane the personal human sense of self finally dissipates. And the full incarnation of God, the I am that I am, comes forth through the sacred marriage of the Christ mind and the soul. And in this sacred marriage, God, the great I am presence, takes up these mighty temples and is returned to the world. And therefore, in these next three years, the very center of my life, that place that I live from, as I attend the various events of my life, Relationships, work, errands, health. Yet in all my being and doing, over these next three years, for me, it is all about becoming all of God. It is about studying, praying, decreeing, meditating, upon the Christ mind, upon the door to everything, the final resurrection, the restoration to grace, the holy marriage in which the mind of the father and the soul of the mother unites within my individuality and expresses through this life I have been given. I am here. I am the light that cometh into the world. This is my destiny.
and my victory. And I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. In the words of the prophet, in the words of truth, when truth speaks, I am with you always. Nearer than breathing, nearer than hands and feet, I am with you. bless you precious hearts and perhaps you might even like to make that your new Monday evening for those of you who enter into the Monday evening meditation do you understand what I am speaking of if you would like to make that so well I feel that you will be well that it will be a wonderful experience for you if you take this up did you enjoy the journey God blessings you. I thank you, dear hearts. recognizable today from her fierce appearance, bearing the proud head of a lioness, crowned by the sun disk and cobra with the lower body of an Egyptian woman. As with many Egyptian deities, Sekhmet is a complex character with a dramatic mythology and enduring influence, which continues to inspire people today. Her name translates to the powerful female one and serves as an effective proclamation of her ancient might. Sekhmet is often seen in connection to the cat goddess, Bastit, and the bovine goddess, Hutor. Though sufficiently distinct, these goddesses are often syncretized, making it oftentimes unavoidable to explore one without the other. Sekhmet is a challenging goddess. She was the patron of healers and doctor priests, with an unrivaled ability to both inflict and retract illness and disease, bringing great harm as well as offering healing and fierce protection. It was not just thankfulness for these gifts that made her cult popular. The Sekhmet inspired great fear and needed to be appeased to ensure her blessing. She was a bloodthirsty warrior goddess who brought death, fear, and suffering. Sekhmet, therefore, represents ancient human fears which continue to affect people across the globe today. It is Sekhmet's wild, terrifying, and untamed nature that many find so intriguing. 
She is a goddess of contradiction, sovereign over violence and sickness, as well as patron of healing and protection. She is truly the mighty one. Today, Sekhmet often bears the title Goddess of Healing, relegating her to this specific realm of influence. Ancient Egyptian deities, as with many other ancient pantheons, were extremely complex, with powers intersecting with numerous aspects of life and death. Identifying Sekhmet as Goddess of Healing implies that this was her primary area of concern and divine occupation. It is true that many of her priests were also doctors, and that people often pray to her for healing. However, numerous ancient texts also describe her as the cause of the disease in the first place. Many prefer to emphasize her healing attributes, which is completely valid. But it is vital that we recognize her dangerous aspects also as the unleashed manifestation of female rage and nature's destructive forces. At times, nature can be harrowing. This is a fact of life reflected in many of the goddesses and gods across world cultures. Sekhmet is a North African deity whose origins and ancient worship were firmly located within the Egyptian landscape and cultural worldview. This is important to remember, not only because the land itself explains much about her character, but also because there are many today who are not of North African descent and who live outside of Egypt, reviving her worship abroad. Sekhmet did not receive the same enthusiastic reception from the Greco-Roman world that goddesses such as Asep did. Whatever the reason for this, Sekhmet has maintained a distinctly Egyptian and Nubian identity. Wherever possible, one should keep this context in mind paying due respect to the beliefs of ancient Egyptian ancestors, as well as towards the living descendants who reside in these landscapes today and whose heritage we offer the greatest respect to. Sekhmet's character and mythology were formed around the flowing waters, the desert sands, and the intense sun of Egypt's ancient landscape. One of the names that the ancient Egyptians knew their land by was Kemet, meaning the black land, after the black soil of the Nile banks. Kemet was, and Egypt is, a valley of fecund fields, swaying palms, and ripe fruits. Sailing along the river is a feast of colour, from its piercing blue sky to its lush green foliage, and the gleaming yellow mountains in the distance. The river is cradled between the eastern and western mountains, reminding you that the desert resides close by. To the ancient and modern Egyptians, the intensity of the Egyptian summer sun was, and is, a very real fact of life. In ancient times, the end of the summer consisted of scorching heat and parched fields, and people eagerly awaited the coming of the flood, which occurred annually until the establishment of the Aswan High Dam in 1970. Contrastingly, the winter months welcomed cooler temperatures with inundated fields, rich soil, and abundant crop growth. This dichotomy formed an Egyptian worldview of the balance between order and chaos, physically expressed through the luscious floodplain and the arid desert. The river valley where the Egyptian people settled and built their civilization was considered the realm of order. Under the jurisdiction of the Pharaoh, the embodiment of the god Heru on earth, the desert on the other hand was an unoccupied mysterious landscape exposed to the creatures of chaos and the sovereignty of the god, Sutek, though certainly worshipped in the floodplain settlements. Sekhmet could be found roaming the outskirts and places suited to the habitat of lions and land predators. Sekhmet was very much a goddess tied to the landscape from which she originated, reflected by her associations with sunlight, heat, 
fire, and the untamed wild. It is easy to understand Sekhmet's destructive qualities when one considers the intensity of the Egyptian sun that she embodies. Whilst other Egyptian goddesses represent beneficent solar qualities, Sekhmet embodies its destructive potential, that which burns, consumes, and causes drought. Her fiery breath can be felt on especially hot days, where heat waves are visible before your eyes. On days such as this, one can tangibly feel the lioness's hot breath panting over them, burning skin, causing thirst. Wild animals roam the desert and the Nile Valley alike. Although with time, larger predators were overhunted or chose to move downriver, there are several leonine deities within the ancient Egyptian pantheon with a clear predominance of female lionesses. Sekhmet is iconic amongst them and her manifestation as a lioness is integral to her nature. Leonine imagery is attested during the pre-dynastic period of Egypt. Around 3200 to 3000 BCE, found carved on ceremonial palettes. According to common, though also contested theory, schematic versions of these palettes originally functioned as plates for the grinding and subsequent application of cosmetics, which were potentially worn during hunting rituals. More elaborate ceremonial palettes began to appear during the Nakada Third Period, suggesting an elite interest in hunting. This is supported by the zooarchaeological evidence, indicating that meat consumption occupied a minimal percentage of common diets. Despite considerable iconographic representation, the ritual hunt was a symbolic display of order triumphing over chaos, expressed by human hunters defeating wild prey. Sekhmet's alignment with the lioness meant she was believed to possess a ferocious protectiveness over her cubs and undertook the responsibility of leading the pride's merciless hunt for food. Both these roles, ensuring protection and obtaining food, necessitates a violence in the animal kingdom which is required to maintain nature's balance. The earliest attestation of Sekhmet's name dates to Egypt's Old Kingdom in the Pyramid Texts, around 2631 to 2181 BCE. These texts are inscriptions found within the earliest pyramids in Egypt predating those on the famous Giza complex. To some, these pyramids might not look like much on the outside, but inside the walls are covered in columns upon columns of magical hieroglyphic texts. These consist of sacred utterances intended to ensure the bearer's ascension into the afterlife by magic and divine assistance. It is here that Sekhmet is first mentioned by name and in connection to the other two feline goddesses, Asit and Shesmetir. In one utterance, Sekhmet and Shesmetir are joint mothers of the pharaoh. I, the pharaoh, have emerged from the Ennead's thighs. I have been conceived by Sekhmet, and Shesmetir is the one who gave birth to me. Such a statement demonstrates the ability for ancient Egyptian religion to hold multiple seemingly contradictory truths at once. The pyramid texts appear very early on in ancient Egyptian history with no clear antecedents. However, they are so well developed that scholars have surmised that their mythic context must predate their recording within the pyramids. Therefore, though Sekhmet's name appears here for the very first time in writing, it is likely that she had a religious presence much earlier than this. By the 5th dynasty, the cult of Sekhmet is well attested as a particular favorite of the pharaoh Sahure. Pyramid text references to Sekhmet and her close connection with Sahure tell us that from the beginning of Egyptian history, she could be regarded as the mother of pharaohs. These rulers inherited the throne of Egypt through their maternal link with goddesses such as Sekhmet, the daughter of Ra, the creator himself.
If you would like to learn more about the ancient Egyptian goddess Sekhmet, then I recommend you start with our book, Sekhmet, Lady of Flame, Eye of Ra, by Olivia Church, who also provided the words for this video. Thank you very much for watching. Subscribe for weekly content, and we'll see you next time. Greetings, Mother. In the light. In the light. Oh, the most greatest In the office of Christ. And only in the office of Christ. We invoke the loving energies of Saint Germain and the flame. At this time, as the review of War, Oppenheimer, Batman, Little Boy, at this time we declare war is over. Sekhmet, the goddess of balance, comes. And we are so grateful, Mother, each and every week, here you are again. Greetings. Greetings, children of Ra. <sighs> Wild times we are living in. Yes, the names are many. Our presence is preceded by these stories. The message simply is love. In spite of all the war stories, what's happening right now is the greatest shift of the ages. It's happening within us. As we can turn the story from one of war to one of love and it's happening in spite of our children's best efforts to keep it in the old timeline. A 
everything's leaking out of all the centuries of the Matrix. Time to close it up. It's quite a magical, auspicious moment to be here in your midst as the shift of this age is unfolding. It's a huge deal with what's happening with the sun and our temple's bodies as the intelligent light that's pouring in from the sun knows how to shift our consciousness as we keep an open heart it makes it so much easier at this time although resistance is futile love is the answer ultimately when it comes down to it the spark of divinity that created this story is called love in the cells the cosmic cells of what makes up this universe suns, stars, planets, comets, asteroids, meteors everything that is the cosmic soup of what life is is unfolding at this time as the highly intelligent cosmic rays that are coming in are raising all of us up and the planet animal vegetable mineral all taking place at this time it is very auspicious to be here in this moment we are seeing the return of this 
golden age that's been talked about for so long. The Pleiadians, like Aurora Ray, speaks of were some of the first to come here, seed the life forms. And now it is coming out that they're not going anywhere, coming more and more to enter this realm, this dimension. Uh, thousands, millions of years. Hey, we have come here to awaken the people. It's no wonder it's story here leaking out across the planet about hmm, that story. Oppenheimer, Einstein. Los Alamos, the book you read, Buddha in Red Face. Yes, we gotta <coughs> we gotta get the next book. Yes, yes. When this creation story began. It was about that spark of divinity. It is about what the sun is, not destruction, construction, what got changed here of this story not exploding atoms nuclear fusion cold fusion 93 million miles away thousand miles away hmm the sun it's part of this cosmic creation story the atoms this recent story this guy got told about the neutrinos. 
cosmic rays coming in that's been going on forever and there is no end no beginning this infinity loop of what we are all experiencing right now you had Judy Woodruff's name up there yes Rapidly unfolding to bring closer to one old time mind and a new one that is unfolding right now. This Sat Yuga Golden Age. The stories about Lord Krishna, Radha, Rama, Sita, Lakshmi, Ganesh, Vishnu, Brahma, Shiva, all the folks are here. Was a quarrel. Lord, our Muru. Hmm. This magical story that's unfolding right now mm. is how we send more love to this wrapping up of one cycle, the beginning of another, it is well underway. Age of Aquarius is upon us. Pluto bouncing between Capricorn Aquarius. Pluto gonna go into Aquarius once again coming up in the next few months and with it Pluto, Hades, whoever you want to call him it is about the great cleansing, purification does not have to be this Armageddon story. That is an old timeline. Mm-hmm. From fear and fascination with the dark side. When our children came here in the beginning, they played 
as creator gods and goddesses of the Most High. And it's like that song says, fooled around and fell. What song is that, Molly? Oh, we'll play it for you tomorrow. Who's the singer? Mm. Folks from Motown. Okay. Yeah. This is the completion of this. What happened in Babylon, Sumeria, Atlantis, a reflection. What's happening now? We have the power to change this. Not to war, but to peace. It takes each one of us and begins with the children and these stories that are coming out about what the 13 families have been doing for eons. All coming out now where there can be healing, closure, sending all the trauma back into radiant love. It is a tall order, yet we ask to be here right at this time to help the rainbow crystal children generation Z to show and wake up all the folks love is the answer Stories are about to hear from Miss Amy are not too pretty, yet they are the truth. Mm -hmm. Even Amy has to twist her tongue to stay alive at this time mm -hmm. because. Hmm, What's happening is completion time. And we got light years to go before we sleep. Greetings. Thank you, Mother. In the light of the most radiant one. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Shabbayo. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, 
We remember who we are, Mother. Thank you for reminding us. Only love. <laughs> Namaste. Momentito, everybody. Momentito. Mm. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Rob. Where mm. did you go? Um, um, I was on Commander Soltek's ship. Oh. And... Um, there is a gathering of folks at this time. Uh, many different commanders that I haven't seen in a very long time that are letting us know that, you know, this is the time, this is the place, and call us in. You'll find us where you least expect. This is what the message is. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well. I pass the talking stick. All right, everybody. Um, all right, it's over here. All right.
Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russian ongoing attacks on Ukrainian grain supplies have destroyed at least 60,000 tons of grain as global food security faces mounting threats. Russia's Navy also carried out live fire military exercises in the Black Sea days after Moscow withdrew from the Black Sea grain deal. And both Moscow and Kyiv said ships traveling to either Russian or Ukrainian ports through the waterway constitute potential military targets. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said today he'll be holding talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin, which could lead to restoring the grain deal. Meanwhile, Ukraine started using cluster bombs supplied by the United States on a battlefield. Over 100 countries have signed on to an international treaty banning their use due to the danger they pose to civilians, though it's not signed by Russia, Ukraine, or the United States. Nebraska. The teenager who used abortion pills to terminate her pregnancy was sentenced to 90 days in jail. Mm. Police charged 19-year-old Celeste Burgess and her mother, Jessica Burgess, who assisted her in getting the pills and disposing of the fetus after Facebook handed over their private messages. Celeste was just 17 when her mother ordered the pills online. The events took place before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June 2022. At the time, abortion in Nebraska was banned after 20 weeks. Earlier this year, Governor Jim Pillen signed a 12-week ban into law. Meanwhile, a court in Austin heard testimony this week from women who are suing over Texas's abortion ban, which puts their lives in danger when they were unable to end their pregnancies, even when they were non-viable. In a dramatic moment, Plaintiff Samantha Cassiano vomited on the stand as she recounted her traumatic experience. She was forced to carry out her pregnancy even after receiving a diagnosis of anencephaly, a severe congenital disorder that results in a baby being born without portions of its brain and skull. Another plaintiff, Elizabeth Weller, spoke at a news conference Wednesday. I was sent home to wait for my baby to die or for my infection to start showing physical symptoms, even though they were already there. But I wasn't sick enough to get the care that I needed. There is no statement of pro-life in this state when you send me home to wait for my baby to die inside me and for me to wait for myself to get to a point where I have to gamble my uterus and gamble my life and gamble any future possibility of becoming pregnant. It's not pro-life. In a sense, it's almost pro-torture. The press conference was held by the Center for Reproductive Rights, which brought the lawsuit on behalf of 13 patients and two doctors. In related news, new data shows Texas's abortion bans likely leading to a surge in infant mortality as women are forced to carry non-viable pregnancies to term. Infant deaths increased by over 11% last year over the previous year. Meanwhile, infant deaths with severe genetic and birth defects rose by over 21% after years of decline. Florida's Board of Education approved new standards for teaching black history after Governor Ron DeSantis and Florida Republicans passed new laws limiting what can be taught in classrooms as part of their anti-woke crusade. The standards include teaching children that, quote, slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit, unquote. It also instructs educators to teach about violence committed by black people. 
The Florida Education Association blasted the new standards, saying, quote, Governor DeSantis is pursuing a political agenda guaranteed to set good people against one another, and in the process, he's cheating our kids. They deserve the full truth of American history, the good and the bad, they said. Vice President Kamala Harris is traveling to Jacksonville today to speak out against Florida's attack on black history and education. In more news from Florida, rights groups are suing over SB 1718, a new law targeting immigrants, making it more difficult to work and get medical care, among other things. One in five Florida residents is an immigrant. In a statement, the ACLU of Florida said, quote, this legislation is not the solution to any problem. It's an attempt to scapegoat and terrorize vulnerable families and workers already burdened by the difficulty of the federal immigration process, they said. Meanwhile, the Florida Rights Restoration Committee is suing DeSantis, they say, for illegally intimidating people with felonies in order to prevent prevent them from voting. The lawsuit accuses Florida of creating intentional obstacles to determine voting eligibility and creating an election police to go after people who may have cast ballots without knowing they were still not legally permitted to do so. Almost all those targeted by the police force were black and Democrats. In Georgia, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger announced another 191,000 people will be purged from Georgia election rolls, even though they're registered voters. The move targets voters who are deemed inactive because mailed election materials were not able to be delivered, and voters who may have not officially signaled an address change. Kendra Cotton, head of the New Georgia Project Action Fund, said, quote, Georgia is well known for its wide-ranging and creative attempts at voter suppression. Voting is a right. If someone chooses not to use it, that doesn't mean they lose it, they said. Meanwhile, in Alabama, lawmakers passed a new congressional map this week that still does not include a second majority black district as ordered by the U.S. Supreme Court last month. In other news from Alabama, the state executed James Barber early this morning after the U.S. Supreme Court denied a request for a stay. It's the first execution by lethal injection in Alabama following a pause last year to review a series of botched executions. The group reprieve said, quote, there's no humane method of execution. Executions aren't working and it's torture, they said. A warning to our audience, the following story contains descriptions of sexual violence. In India, protesters have taken to the streets after a video went viral on social media showing dozens of men sexually assaulting two women in the northeastern state of Manipur. The incident took place in May, but the video surfaced just this week due to an internet ban in the region. The main suspect was arrested Thursday, accused of dragging the two women, aged 21 and 42, onto the street and inciting a mob of over two dozen men to assault them, then parade them on the streets naked. At least one of them was raped by the mob. Manipur has recently seen soaring ethnic violence between the majority Meite group and the tribal Kuki minority. The two women assaulted in the video are Kuki. The families of the two survivors have denounced police misconduct, saying it took law enforcement months to address the case. In Ecuador, some 1,200 barrels of crude oil spilled into the Pacific Ocean Wednesday, contaminating over two miles of shoreline. Officials with Ecuador's national oil company, PetroEcuador, said a tank in a maritime terminal had surpassed its capacity, causing it to spill. The company was only able to contain about half the spilled crude, while the rest collected on the ocean front of the popular Las Palmas Beach. Cleanup efforts are underway as environmentalists warn of the effects the spill could have on local oh. wildlife. 
Here in New York City, lawyers, plaintiffs, and city officials held a news conference Thursday following the announcement the city will settle for $13 million with racial justice protesters who were brutalized by the New York police during the 2020 uprising that followed the murder of George Floyd. This is attorney Wiley Stecklow. Today's settlement is historic, and I'm very proud that it will bring some sense of justice to nearly 1,400 people who took to the streets and put their bodies in the line against police brutality. But as a New York City taxpayer, I am bothered. The payout is a red flag, but we still have NYPD executive officers like Chief of Patrol John Chell, Inspector Elias Nikas, leading unconstitutional protest policing in this city. Their example to the rest of the 35,000 members of service is that the Constitution does not apply simply when these high-ranking members of the service say so. The Senate Judiciary Committee advanced legislation to mandate the Supreme Court adopt a code of ethics and stricter financial disclosure rules. The move comes following explosive revelations around several justices, most notably Clarence Thomas, who was lavish for decades with luxury travel and gifts by GOP mega-donor Harlan Crow. No Republicans voted for the measure, though they did attempt to add amendments to make it easier for judges to carry weapons and to ban reporters from publishing draft opinions without court approval. The amendments were defeated. And in labor news, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, has averted a strike that would have shut down Broadway after reaching a tentative deal to improve working conditions for some 1,500 stagehands, hair and makeup artists, and wardrobe personnel. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, we speak to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Mariana Hossa on a new investigation into the sexual abuse of women detained by ICE. And then we speak to Isabel Allende about her new novel. Stay with us. descriptions of sexual abuse. We begin today's show with a disturbing new investigation into how immigration officials have failed to properly address complaints of sexual abuse from people held in detention centers. The damning new report by Mariana Hossa and Ziba Warsi, two immigrant women and journalists, examines how women in immigration and customs enforcement or ICE jails have been sexually abused, often in a medical setting, when they're at their most vulnerable. The report's out today from Futuro Investigates, the investigative unit of the Pulitzer Prize-winning news organization Futuro Media. 
Asia and Latino USA. It comes more than a decade after Mariana Jose's report for PBS Frontline about sexual abuse in ICE jails. But allegations of abuse have continued. Maria will join us in a minute. But first, this clip from the report. When she and Ziva speak with a Venezuelan migrant who is using the pseudonym Viviana for safety, describing her first meeting with a male nurse employed at ICE's Stewart Detention Center in Georgia. During her first week's detained at Stewart, Viviana had a urinary tract infection. She was prescribed medication that gave her a severe allergic reaction. Your face is swollen, your lips are swollen, you were unable to breathe, and you were feeling incredibly scared. She tells us that in that moment of total vulnerability, that's when she met this male nurse, a short white man with a beard. And we should warn you, the following descriptions of her visits are explicit. They are hard to listen to, but we also believe they're necessary to understand what Viviana and other women go through. So he's using a stethoscope to put it on your lower body. So I'm just to describe what you're showing me is that he takes the stethoscope and he basically puts it right where a woman's ovary might be. Y me decía, abre la boca. Viviana told us that while examining her with the stethoscope, nurse asked her to open her mouth and then to open it wider, then stepped away and typed a question into Google Translate. And this made her feel even more uncomfortable. So at this point, he writes a note to you that asks you if you have a boyfriend. Te pregunta si tienes un novio. Sí. Had also reported they were abused by the same male nurse at Stewart. Let's go to another clip from the new investigation. So, once women started to arrive at Stewart, this nurse started seeing female patients, and Viviana said he started abusing them. This nurse and his abuse, you believe, was not a secret to anybody who had spent any time inside Stuart, whether they were his colleagues or people who were detained. Tú sientes que todo el mundo sabía de este enfermero. Claro. After that second incident with the nurse, Viviana returned to her cell and broke down in tears. She told other detainees what happened to her. So you feel like you were one of the people who helped the other women start naming what was happening. Women from different countries told her that they suffered similar abuses from the same male nurse. We've reviewed documents that show that at least five women came forward and complained against the male nurse. One of them was also another young woman from Venezuela. An excerpt from the new investigation called Immensely Invisible, which found the pattern of sexual abuse complaints and ICE detention goes beyond the Stewart Jail in Georgia. 
when we were only brought to Stewart in 2020 after ICE had to shut down the Irwin County Detention Center, also in Georgia, when a whistleblower nurse there exposed forced hysterectomies and other invasive gynecological procedures by Dr. Mahendra Amin, who was contracted by LaSalle Corrections, which runs Irwin for ICE. In 2020, Democracy Now! spoke to a survivor of gynecological abuse while detained at Irwin. Karen Floriana Navarro described how she was scheduled for an unwanted hysterectomy while held at Irwin between 2019 and September 2020 until she was deported to Mexico. She believed in retaliation for speaking up about the abuse. Again, a warning to our audience. Her account is extremely disturbing. And from day one that I met Dr. Min, he said, okay, you need surgery. He did a ultrasound, vaginal ultrasound with the, with the wand. And I didn't even know he was going to do that. To be honest with you, I didn't know that I was going to have to take my pants off or lay on that bed and let him look at me. I didn't, I didn't know that. Nobody ever told me that I was going to have a vaginal ultrasound. They took me back to see Dr. Amin from March to July at least 25 times. They would take me out constantly to go see him. He would he would always check me. If it wasn't with his fingers, then it would be with the wand. And to be honest with you, it was uncomfortable each and every time. I didn't like anything he ever did. I didn't like his posture. I didn't like the way he stood in front of me or rested his hand on my knee as he did the vaginal, the vaginal surge or whatever he was doing. And it was uncomfortable, to be honest with you. He kept telling me every single time I would see him that I was going to have a surgery. But for some reason, I never knew when the surgery was going to be. For more, we're joined by Maria Hinojosa, the Pulitzer Prize-winning founder of Futura Media, host of Latino USA, which collaborated on this new investigation called Immensely Invisible about the ongoing pattern of sexual abuse and ICE detention. Maria, welcome back to Democracy Now! This is such a harrowing investigation. Talk about all that you have learned. This is over a decade after you did this big PBS investigation. Amy, you know, we're journalists. The work that we do is actually to serve. And we believe in our work that when we put sunlight, when we put sun, sun, right, when we uncover something, that because we believe we live in such an advanced democratic country, that we believe things are going to get better. And they don't. In this particular case, on the question of people, men, women, children, in this case we're reporting about women, being sexually abused continuously at government-run immigrant detention centers consistently gets worse, actually. It doesn't get better. One of the things that we uncovered with this piece with Zabel Morsi from the PBS NewsHour um, is that one of the things that, the, that ICE is trying to do is to use transfers this is a term that now you're going to begin to hear more about, those of you who care about this kind of reporting. Transfers as a way to deal with immigrants and refugees who are making complaints. Or transfers in order to deal with one immigrant detention center that is shut down because of abuse. And then people are transferred to another detention facility where they are said, now you're going to be safe. 
Now you're going to be safe, and you're going to be transferred from one to another, and now things are going to get better. In fact, we have seen that it's a form of punishment. It's a way of shuffling off the problem, not dealing with the problem. Amy, as you know, we have been friends and colleagues for decades now. And when I uncovered the abuse in the front line in 2011, it was it was horrific. Uh, Senator Dick Durbin goes on the Senate floor and says, because of the front line, that is why PREA, Prison Rape Elimination Act, must be offered in immigrant detention facilities. And here we are, uncovering yet again that ICE investigates itself. What is that? They're investigating themselves. And finally, we have a very specific case of women coming forward, taking agency, which is part of our, our investigation, right, is that they're not, they're not just victims, but they are also taking agency, speaking up, complaining about one male nurse who, as far as we know, has not lost his license and who sexually abused them continuously when they were seen. The nurse, when you're in a vulnerable, just like the, the, the cut that we just heard, which is horrific, um, when women, refugees and immigrants are at their most vulnerable, this is when they are being exposed to being abused by medical personnel. It is horrific, Amy. I had to go into a whole other series of, of therapy because of this exposure yet again. So the Southern Poverty Law Center, Maria, reviewed medical records. They showed the male nurse had been working at Stewart Detention Facility, the jail in Georgia, since at least 2018. What's known about his employment now? Uh, we know that he has not lost his license. Uh, we know who he is. We tried to communicate. Zeba called him. He hung up. Uh, we do not know. We, we, don't, we know that there is no kind of official complaint against him. Uh, nothing that has been legally brought on by ICE or any of the uh, core civic-run detention facilities where he may have worked. So he is a predator. And he remains out there. And by the way, Amy, if if you have a criminal mind, there's a TV show, right? Criminal Minds. If you have a criminal mind, you know exactly where to go to fight a job. You go to ICE because you know now that because there is um, they need to fill positions, there aren't even background checks, and you have access to men to women and to children in trauma. And you know that they will more than likely not complain because as we talked about in this piece, if you complain, you are going to be threatened. Like our, like the women who we spoke to, they were told that they were going to be sent to prison, that they were going to be deported immediately. Constant coercion and threats. So this is horrific. This, Amy, we know. Sadly, you and I will be gone and they'll make Hollywood movies, we hope, about how this was happening in the United States and how everybody was just like, how is this happening? It's happening today. Women who are abused in detention are supposed to be protected by the Prison Rape Elimination Act, or PREA. Can you talk about the legislation and the protections ICE and private prison corporations like Core Civic have mm -hmm. repeatedly ignored? So the Prison Rape Elimination Act was created for prisons, right? It is a, a way in which to protect people behind bars when they are being sexually assaulted. It is a way in which they can have kind of an independent way to complain. Um, but this, as we know, because immigrants in detention, we do not have the same legal rights. We have no legal rights, zero due process. 
And Senator Dick Durbin was so moved by what we uncovered in 2011 in the front line, which you can watch on, on front line on YouTube, and <clears throat> that those protections, which is that uh, somebody who's held can make an independent complaint, has access to a way to make this complaint, to follow up on the complaint, that there, in the case of ICE, what, what Zeba was able to uh, see has changed, right, is that now you have the protocol of having signed all over, which is really dystopian because the abuse continues to happen, but now you have signs everywhere that say, by the way, if you're being abused, you should not be being abused, and you can call this number for help. And what we uncovered is, as you heard, Viviana and Mari saying, those signs mean nothing for the people who are being held, absolutely nothing. And that's what's changed, that now there's a sign up. But it doesn't mean that there's a, a legal a protection for women, in this case, being uh, who are complaining against sexual abuse. By the way, Amy, for the immigrants who are held in detention, the legal path for them is incredibly complicated because, again, they have no due process because, like me, they were not born in this country. And as a result, you have no due process when you're in immigrant proceedings. Well, Mariana Hosa, we're going to link to this incredible investigation you've done. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, founder of Futuro Media, host of Latino USA. The investigation into sexual assault of migrants held at ICE detention jails. Coming up, the acclaimed author, Isabel Allende. Back in 30 seconds. Victor Hada here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We spend the rest of the hour with Isabel Allende, one of the world's most celebrated novelists, the author of 26 books that have sold more than 77 million copies and been translated into more than 40 languages. Isabel Allende was born in Peru in 1942. She traveled the world as the daughter of a Chilean diplomat. Her father's first cousin was former Chilean President Salvador Allende. This September marks 50 years since Augusto Pinochet seized power from Allende in a CIA-backed military coup. The date, September 11th. 1973, Salvador Allende died in the palace that day. Isabel Allende would later flee from her native Chile to Venezuela. Her books include The House of the Spirits, Paula, and Daughter of Fortune. Her latest novel, The Wind Knows My Name, looks at the trauma of child family separation from the Nazi Holocaust to the U.S.-Mexican border and those on the front lines helping migrant children. On Thursday, I interviewed Isabel from her home in California. I asked her to start by telling us the story of her new novel, The Wind Knows My Name, beginning in 1938. In 1938 in November, um, it was a Kristallnacht in uh, German and Austria. And the, it was a night in which uh, the Nazi mobs attacked the Jewish houses and establishments, commercial establishments, and they broke the windows and beat up, beat up people, and it was a very scary and terrible uh, preamble to what was going to happen very soon after. And at that point, the Jewish community realized that they had to get out, and so many people started 
looking for visas and places to go. The England offered 10,000 temporary visas for children to get the children out. And so many families had the terrible choice sending their children away, save them from potential danger was there in, in the air. And they knew it was coming, but they couldn't be very sure. And still, they, they had to make that choice. So uh, these kids, uh, ages, I don't know, one year old up to 15, went convoys in trains to the Netherlands and other places where they would be sent to England. They were received by people who were offered their homes by financiers and other establishments. Really, the parents never, never knew who was going to receive the kids or what was going to happen to them. Most of them, more than 90% of them, never saw their families again. The, the, that separation that was supposed to be temporary became permanent. And those children who lost everything uh, were raised in other places. They had a life in England or in Europe or they came to the United States. Many of them became very successful. I heard on the on television some interviews to the old people were part of the kinder transport, and they had a hole in the heart. Never forgot the trauma. Lived with that all their lives. So when the separation of families at the border here happened in 2017 and 18. I remember the kinder transport and other instances in which the children have been taken away from the parents. For example, during slavery, children were sold out, taken from their mother's arms. In many indigenous tribes, not only in the United States, but in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, in many places, the children were taken away to put them in some Christian orphanages, horrible places where many of them died of abuse and starvation. Uh, so, so that idea of separating the kids is extremely cruel, but it keeps happening. And that prompted me to write the book. I, I was already thinking about it. I had I saw a case through my foundation that, that really triggered writing. And that was the case of a little girl with her brother. She was seven and the brother, she was almost seven, and the brother was four. And they came with their mother to the United States illegally. They were separated at the border. Mother was detained, arrested, sent away. And the children were in detention centers and then in foster homes and whatever. Problem is the girl was blind. And imagine a little blind girl who is in charge of a brother and who doesn't know where she is, doesn't speak the language, can't see, can't even recognize people or, or places. But the, that, the terror of that girl was what triggered the book. Then I realized that, like in most of my books, you don't focus on the victims as much as on the people who are trying to help. 
because it is through them, through their actions and through their eyes, that I can tell the story without plunging into the depth of hell. I wanted to go back for a moment to the kinder transport that you talk about. We dug up a documentary called Kinder Transport, directed by Frank Robertson and Kevin McDonald. In this clip, we hear Leo Metstein and Edith Forrester. In the evening, my mother took me to the railway station. And then I really felt for the first time that there was going to be something terrible happen. And I, I remember saying to my mother, you're coming too. And she said, well, no, not just now. I hope to come later. The station was a horrific experience. I mean, you can just imagine there were thousands of people there and they were letting their children go. And it was a just horrible to see. I just look back and just see my mother and sister standing there. That's the worst memory I've got. And I'm just crying all the time, just cry, cry, cry. That's all I could do. And then as the train just lurched a little, I screamed. I can hear my voice yet shouting, Mutti, Mutti, Mummy, Mummy. And somebody lifted me up and I was able to see over somebody's head my mother's face, her eyes frantically looking for me. And that was my last sight of my mother. Those voices from the documentary Kinder Transport. And that's the story you tell of a young Samuel who, too, would never see his parents again, Isabel. Yeah. Uh, it was very, very easy for me to put myself in the place of Samuel. Um, I, I really felt his pain and... and uh, and, and Samuel, for me, is a very interesting character. This is a man who, because of the trauma of his childhood, he was a, really a musical prodigy, but that was lost in the shuffle and the, and the war and everything else. Uh, he, he tries to have a very safe life. So he, he becomes a musician in the symphony. He, ha he ha has a sheltered life, a protected life, in which he doesn't want to get involved anything that will upset him. He's married to a wonderful, extravagant woman, and he doesn't know about her infidelities or about the, her secret um, activities or who she's, what she's doing and with whom, because that would upset him. He just wants everything as nice as possible. And then the pandemic hits when he's 86, and he finds himself... Uh, home, sheltering at home, terror of being alone, he asks his housekeeper, Leticia, to please stay with him, thinking it would be just for a week or two. And so they start living together. Then at 86, he can't reflect about his life. And there's a point when he says, I wasted my life. I let life pass by and I didn't participate in anything. I am guilty of the sin of indifference. And, I, and sooner or later in life, you pay for that. <sighs> then life gives him the opportunity to atone for that sin of indifference when he opens his heart and his house and his life to the little girl who knows at his door, his little blind girl. You know, it's 
I was reading about Anita, the little girl. I couldn't help but think back to 2018 inside that U.S. Customs and Border Protection facility in which children are heard crying mama and poppy after being separated from their parents. The kids believed to have been between the ages of four and ten years old. I want to play that clip for a moment. Audio Shock the World was later played by reporters at a White House press briefing, also blasted from speakers to donors as they arrived at a Republican fundraiser at Trump's hotel in Washington, D.C. These children separated under Trump's child separation policy, uh, what still hundreds, if not a thousand or more, still never reconnected with their families, with their parents. Talk more about Anita and her journey. Well, in the case of the real Anita, uh, the, the girl who inspired the book, um, she she couldn't hear where her mother was or reunite with her mother, but there were lawyers and, and social workers trying to put the family together again. Eventually, after eight months, they were reunited and they went for in front of a judge who deported them all. And they were deported to Mexico, and we never heard from them again. So um, it's a very tragic story, one of the many tragic stories. There are still, as you said, a, a thousand kids at least that have not been reunited because no one thought about it. The, they thought about the separation, not the unification, the reunification. So um, th- there are many, many aspects of this that are terrible. For example, the, the, the name of the, of the book, The Wind Knows My Name, the idea is that in order to keep track of the kids, give them a number. Sometimes the kids are so little, they are babies. They don't even speak English. They don't know, they don't speak anything or they are so traumatized that they won't speak. But even their names are lost, and they become numbers. So when we think of of refugees, there are 170 million refugees in the world. We think of numbers. That doesn't mean anything. We need to see the face, hear the story, know the name, so that it makes sense. We would be that person. That would be our child. And and that is, the, I think, the, the miracle of literature, that it brings people close. By telling the story of one child, you can somehow uh, connect the reader and create that, that um, sense of empathy that is so often lacking. And Isabel, so often the the power of your books, it's the stories of real people, but also 
the way you expand and bend and wind them through your imagination. Um, you tell us the story of, of Anita and also Leticia. And if you could tell us her story and talk about what happened in El Salvador in 1981. Well, the, 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 the thing is that when we think of migrants and refugees, why are they coming? There's a moment in the book when, the, when someone, when the lawyer Frank says, well, if they know that they're going to take the children away, why are they coming? Well, they come because they are desperate. They're running away from extreme violence in their countries or extreme poverty. Um, but taking the chance of, of, of crossing the border is preferable than staying. Uh, in, in the case of Leticia, Leticia the housekeeper, she has lived in the, in the United States for many, many years. This is also based on, on a case on, on a very good friend of mine who is from El Salvador. And I see her almost every day because we walk the dogs together. So she helped me a lot with the research for that part of the book. And in El Salvador, there was horrific um, military pressure for in the 80s especially, and one known massacre was the massacre of El Mosote. And this was military uh, entered the zone called El Mosote, which is just farmers, just people who lived off the, off the land. And there were little small villages scattered here and there. And Leticia um, was one of the children in El Mosote. And her, she had a stomach problem, and she was taken by the father to a hospital, a city. And so she was not there when the massacre happened. So the military came in trucks and helicopters, and they took over the, 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 the village, not only that village, several. And they separated the men from the women. They tortured everybody, including the children. They killed everybody, including the pets. The children were in, in, inside what, they, what was supposed to be a little chapel or something, and they burned the whole thing to ashes. Then, three days later, after this orgy of blood, cruelty, and, and death, they left the place. The government put the whole thing up. Years and years. Some people who presented this horror story, because these military were trained by the CIA, in Washington. It was also covered by the press there and by the, the government. So for more than 10 years, the whole story was kept silent. And, and, and there, there's a thousand people dead there. So, and this is in a very small country. So I needed to talk about El Mosote to explain why people get out, why people have to escape. What do you do if you have to confront the maras, the, the, the gangs, the narcos, the military? So it's, it, it was necessary for me to tell the story of Leticia as well, to understand why people emigrate. The story of El Mazote is so horrifying and you depict it so unforgettably uh, in The Wind Knows My Name. Uh, in El Mazote, the Atlacatl Brigade that was trained, as you said, by the United States. Tell us more about The Wind Knows My Name, that title. 
um, and how you continue at the age of 80. You cannot be without a pen, or maybe it's a computer. Um, are you using a pen for the first draft or a computer these days? No, I don't have a draft. I start all my books on January 8th of discipline and superstition probably too. And um, and then I sit in front of the empty blank screen and I'm, often I don't even know what I'm going to write about. I have a vague idea if it's a historical novel. I might have researched the, the place and the time. But but I, I confront the, the screen the beginning with an open mind. I don't know what's going to happen really. And I don't have a draft. I don't have a script. Things happen. Somehow it seems, this is a cliche of course, that the universe conspires to help. Because as I write, it seems that all my antenna are uh, directed out there to, to, to pick up the, the collective unconscious, the collective fears and dreams and, and the past and memory. And all that I can do because I work very silent and very, and it's always, I'm always alone. We live in the noise. So nothing happens in the noise, Amy. When you are in, in silence in, in a room with your characters and with your story, things happen. Miracles happen. Ghosts appear. Everything. Where is the ceremony you perform before you put that um, before you start writing on January eighth? The day before, clean up, and by cleaning up, I mean I take out everything that had to do with the previous book, all the research, the books, the notes, everything. I burn sage. I um, I have my candle, always a new candle. I have my Marco Polo tea ready. And uh, and then I do a little meditation uh, to sort of call in what other people would call inspiration, and I call my spirits, the spirit, the, the memory of my mother and my and my grandparents and my daughter and and the pets that that have gone to the other world. I call them in and I say, "Come on, you have to help me in this process." And then I feel accompanied and strong. So you have your mother, and then you have your memory of Paula, your daughter, your oldest child yeah. who died, who you wrote a book about, and we've talked about that book in the past. But your daughter, also the inspiration for your foundation that works along the border. Um, talk about Paula and how she influences what you do. Paula, yeah. I think that every parent thinks that their children are special, are different, are extraordinary. And that's how I remember my, my daughter. She was, um, she was a psychologist and a teacher, and she worked always as a volunteer among the poorest of the poor. She never earned any money. I supported her with the idea that she would do the good work and I would go to heaven. So we had this, this deal. Um, when she died, I, I mean, she, her, her death really broke my heart. And when when I wrote the book, 
that. I didn't want to touch any of the income that would come from that book, of course. It belonged to her. But I didn't know what to do with it. And eventually I came up with the idea of creating a foundation to prolong the work that she had been doing. So she always worked with women and children because she told me very early on, even before this was knowledge, that if you change a woman's life, you change the family. And if you change and improve the conditions of a family or many families, then the community emerges and eventually a country. And the, the, the pieces that are most backward and poorest in the world are where women are put down the most. So that, that idea uh, that Paula had very young, she had already come up with that, I decided that that was going to be the mantra of my foundation. So we work. Well, I didn't know what, how to do it. Sending checks here and there didn't, didn't do any, any good, I think. But then my, my uh, daughter-in-law walked into our lights, Lori Barra, and she took over. And she transformed the foundation. Right now she's in Africa in sitting our projects over there. She's all the time traveling, all the time in touch with our grantees. And she has done a fantastic, fantastic job. Sometimes I say to, to Lori, Lori, what's the point? This is a drop of water in an ocean, a desert of need. What does it mean? And she says, don't, don't think in numbers, think in lives. If you can improve someone's life, you've done enough. So let's think about that, lives. And, and I understand that because I think it's stories. And stories are always about people, one person at a time. So that's what I try to do in my writing. And that's what Lori does, the foundation. Dedicate the book to Lori. And for people who don't know, Paula, your daughter, died of porphyria, a rare disease, genetic disease. Uh, it's, a, it's a genetic condition that runs in the family, my former husband, I mean Paula's father's family, and two of my granddaughters also have it, and my son. But it doesn't manifest in, in males, only mostly females, women. So um, Paula had an attack. It shouldn't be fatal if it's treated properly and in time. But she was in Madrid. There was serious neglect. I mean, criminal neglect in the hospital. Paula ended up with severe brain damage. They tried to hide it. And for five months, they told me that she was going to recover, um, which of course couldn't. And eventually I brought her in a coma all the way from Madrid, California in a commercial United flight. How did I do that? I have no idea. I I don't know. Um, it was, of course, before 9-11, so that, that was maybe possible. Today would be impossible. And I took care of her at home until she died. She was 29 when she died. Now, both my granddaughters are older than she was when she died. It's interesting how life goes by. And they both have it, but it is not a fatal condition. No, uh, one of my granddaughters has, ha has had six attacks. 
serious attacks and she has survived and she's doing well. And now, finally, recently, there is a preventive drug that, that she is using. Once a month, she gets a shot and that prevents the attack or at least it makes it much milder. You talk to women writers, women who are taking care of so many, uh, being able to isolate as you do, to be able to write, to be able to find that silence. What do you recommend, Isabel? Well, it's so hard. Virginia Woolf already said you need a room of your, room of your own, and that room doesn't have the, a physical room. It has to be a room inside you where you repeat to be alone with yourself and your writing. That is almost impossible if you have small children. I I could not write until my children were teenagers, I mean older teenagers, so that I could, they they already had their lives. Paula was driving. It, It was a completely different life. I worked at the time in administering a school 12 hours a day because I had two shifts. But I would come home, I didn't have to take care of the kids. I knew while I was working, the kids were doing fine. And I, I also had help home. I didn't have to clean up. And uh, so I could, could write at night, beginning in the kitchen, on the kitchen counter, alone at night and during the weekends or I, I could find little moments to write. Then I emptied a closet and I put a board across the closet with a light bulb on top and my typewriter there. Then I could close the doors of the closet and my writing was there intact, waiting for me the next day or another moment to go back to it. But before, when I was writing in the kitchen, that was not possible. I had a canvas bag where I would put everything and carry it around with me like a newborn baby. I would never part from that canvas bag until the manuscript was finished. Uh, so there's always ways that one can find of um, for oneself. But it depends very much on your domestic situation. In fact, you wrote your first book, House of the Spirits, at what? At the age of 40? Yeah, I couldn't do it before. And can you remind us um, how you wrote this book? It's not as if you had an agent. It's not as if you were had a community of writers, as you're describing. Talk about what, you in, what inspired you. You were in... You were in not in Chile at the time, remembering no, no, your grandfather. No, I was living in exile in Venezuela. We still had the military coup in Chile, the dictatorship. Because this was in 1981. It was actually one of the worst times of the, of the dictatorship. Uh, so I was living in Venezuela with my kids and my, my husband. But my husband wasn't living with us. He was working in another province in Venezuela. And... Um, I heard that my grandfather was dying in Chile, and I started a letter for him. Somehow, I, I sort of knew that he would not be able to read the letter because it was his last days, and the mail was would take maybe a couple of weeks, a week at least. I started a letter, and I wanted somehow to tell him or tell myself that I remembered a 
everything that he had ever told me. All the anecdotes of the family, my ancestors, my crazy family. Uh, I remembered everything he had told me. And so I started thinking about my aunt Aunt Rosa, who was my grandfather's first fiance, and she died mysteriously before they could get married. Many years later, my grandfather married the youngest daughter in the same family, my grandmother, who was clairvoyant and, and crazy, also wonderful, a lunatic. And, um, and so I, I started telling about Rosa, and then something happened. Like, it was like everything I had inside just was poured out in those pages. You know, I had a little typewriter. And then, at the time, there was, of course, no computers. You, in order to have a copy of something, you would have a carbon paper behind. But I didn't have even the carbon paper. It was just one only page, the story. And paste, cut with scissors, paste with scotch tape. So that was how you corrected things. You had to think very carefully. Sentence, because erasing it was almost impossible. You had to start the page again. So uh, it was a wonderful process with such innocence, knowing anything about the book industry. I had never read book review in my life. I was a good reader. I had never taken a course about writing or, 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 or being in a workshop. I didn't know any other writers. And of course, it was the time of the boom of Latin American literature, they were all male, they were all men. They were um, it's happening in the periphery of my life. I was reading their work, but I could never even dream of getting in touch with any of them. The world-renowned writer Isabel Allende, her latest novel, The Wind Knows My Name. She's the author of 26 books that have sold more than 77 million copies and translated into more than 40 languages. She just recently turned 80 years old. To see all our interviews with Isabel Allende, visit democracynow.org. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much. This is Richard Wolff, host of the program Economic Update that comes to you on Free Speech TV. Our program is an attempt to help people make sense of what is going on in an economy that's changing quickly and that is dividing this country between a small number of people who have a great deal and a vast number of people who are finding it harder and harder to make in the future. Thank you, free speech. Tell them to back up and for them to just... of Economic Update, the weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Today's program has a particular style to it. I want to talk with you about the emerging new world economic order. I do that because enough of the outlines of that new order Enough of the profiles of the key players are now clear. 
that we can take a step back from the daily and weekly events we normally analyze to look at the dark, uh, the larger picture for a moment. I almost said darker picture. It isn't all dark, but it is larger. It's an overview, if you like, of what's happening in the world. And I mean it to inform our understanding of all the details that we'll be talking about in the future programs uh, that we will be developing. And the way I'm going to do this today is organize it around four major developments that are happening at the same time, interacting with one another, but together give us a clear sense of where this new world economic order is coming. Okay, we begin. Over the last 30, 40, 50 years, depending on how you count, we have been involved in what is called neoliberal capitalism, or if you like, global capitalism. And here's really all that that meant. That coming out of the Great Depression and World War II, private-led capitalism had a new chance to rebuild after the war, to try to recoup after the Great Depression, and to have another growth spurt, which it did. Uh, by the 1970s, that growth spurt was beginning to have a problem keeping going. Not unusual in the history of capitalism as a system. It is growth spurt driven. But after the 1970s, the growth spurt took an unusual form. Where before capitalism had spurted from New England to the Midwest, from the Midwest to the Far West, from all of those areas to the American South, now, after the 1960s and 70s, capitalism's next growth spurt was out of the country, to Asia above all else, but also to the other parts of what has come to be called the global south. More money was to be made there. Wages were much cheaper there. Environmental protection less there. And governments everywhere eager to provide jobs for their people and American corporations, just like European and Japanese corporations, eager to have access to cheaper labor, eager to have access to huge Asian markets. And so neoliberal globalization took hold. Huge numbers of jobs moved from the old centers of capitalism Western Europe, North America, Japan, to the new dynamic centers, China, India, Brazil, and so on. A remarkable process of explosive growth. And in this situation, we find ourselves living with the results of that process. The first result a hollowing out of the old working class in the old centers of capitalism. What do I mean? I mean that jobs left, the jobs that left first, say from the United States, were the highest paid. The unionized jobs, the factory jobs, where workers' struggles had built up 
decent livelihoods for people. That's where there was the most gain in profit if you could move that production to the cheap labor in other parts of the world. And so we lost our steel factories, our auto factories, our aluminum production, all of the basic industry of the country. Why? Because it was profitable for capitalists to move and move they did. And the middle class fell apart. The jobs disappeared. From being a high-paid industrial worker, you became a low-paid greeter at Walmart, etc., etc. Inequality grew because the 10% who own all the shares made all the big profits, and the mass of the working class took a real hit because those in America had to compete with the cheaper labor in China, India, and we all know the result. And it had one more effect. It created capitalist powers outside of the United States, Europe, and Japan, who hadn't seen that before. China, above all, but also India, Brazil, and others emerging. So that the Western capitalist old centers had a dynamic new center competing with them. These were very new developments. One of the things provoked by it, an upsurge of militant labor movements. No surprise, they were reacting to the hard times working classes are facing, one after the other, all over the world. Even in China and India, because of the sudden transformation of agrarian people into industrial working classes, that always shapes people's lives, that always creates tension. And in the West, the disappearing jobs, the disappearing middle class, the disappearing standards of living, the disappearing opportunities for children. Capitalism in the West was under strain. Let me assure you that the rising militancy of the labor movement here in this country, led by service workers among the lowest paid, should be no surprise. The fact that the France as a whole country is shut down by the demand of its working classes not to have the problems of French capitalism taken out on them by taking away the pensions they've already paid for. Or the Germans who last a month shut down the transportation system in their country as a protest against the inflations attacking the working class. And I'll come back to that. We had a shift from globalized neoliberal expansion to its opposite, retraction, countries fighting against one another, the United States shutting down, hobbling interactions with China. Economic nationalism replaced neoliberal globalization. Europe is caught between trying to figure out what to do. Should it still stay with the United States, doing a lot of its dirty work politically, as in Ukraine? Or is the future of Europe better with the new centers? That issue is being fought out in Europe, even if the media in this country pretend otherwise. 
And then there's the isolation of the United States. This is important to understand and brings us as a transition to another of the four factors besides the shift from neoliberal globalization to economic nationalism. We're also seeing the end of a century in which we were told, and many of us believe, that the great struggle was between the state as an owner-operator of enterprises and the private sector as the owner-operator of the enterprises that produce goods and services. We were told this was the struggle between capitalism and socialism. And we've learned that that was a terrible mistake. Capitalism has a private form and a state form. Just like slavery did. Just like feudalism did. Let me drive the point home. During slaveries around the world, were there private slavers? Masters who were private individuals running a business with slaves? Yes. Were there governments who had and operated slave enterprises? Yes. Nobody thinks that it wasn't slavery because the state was doing it alongside the private sector. Same in feudalism. We had state feudal, state lords with serfs, and private lords with serfs. And guess what? There's a pattern here. You start off typically with only the private But the private gets itself into trouble and calls in the state. And so you get state slavery alongside private. Same thing, you get state feudalism alongside private. And guess what? When private capitalism gets into trouble, it calls in the state. That's why Mr. Trump had to wave wage uh, tariff wars and trade wars. And Mr. Biden is doing basically the same. You call in the state, and the state then becomes a bigger and bigger factor. We're seeing the end of the big story of private versus state. Because, in fact, all the societies are combinations, mixtures of those. The United States has a bigger and bigger role for the state. The Republicans complain about it. The Democrats push it. But they all accept it and they all understand it has to be done, even if they give speeches to the contrary on the 4th of July. The greatest example of the hybrid, the combination of private and state capitalist enterprises is the People's Republic of China. By capitalist, I mean the relationship between the employer and the employee. That's the issue. Socialism wants to change that relationship, make it more collective, make it more democratic, make it more a relation of equals, not a relation of hierarchical dominant subordinate. That's not what capitalism allows, neither in its private form, nor in its state form. What China has showed is that you can get a more rapid rate of growth with the hybrid, understanding its peculiarities, than you can if it's all state, 
like Russia, Soviet Russia, or all private, more like the United States and the United Kingdom. So they've become the model. And the United States denounces China as it becomes more of a hybrid itself. If you can't beat them, you end up joining them. I think that's an important thing for us to understand, that in the new world order, we have economic nationalism and a hybrid of state and private employer-employee capitalism. Whatever names they give themselves, whatever their ultimate goals may be, these are the realities that we face. And that means we also have to face the reality that an immense global working class is emerging. Shrinking and suffering in the West, explosively growing in the East and in the global South. And that's going to change everything as the capitalists in the West hunker down, worrying about how long they can survive, the emerging power of the capitalism of the East, the nationalism gripping them, and the state-private hybrid that is their way of coping with the time ahead. We've come to the end of the first half. In the second half of this program, I'm going to be talking about the two other key factors the decline of the American empire, and the big question, what comes next? Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. We're talking about the emergence of a new world economy, a new order in the world economy. And in the first half, we spoke about the end of neoliberal globalization and the turn to economic nationalism. And we also spoke about the end of the stale old debate between private and state as if that were the issue. Now that we have a world composed of hybrids, of mixtures of state and private that are all capitalist in the sense of that same old relationship between employer and employee. The next two out of these four defining qualities of the new world economy has to do with the American empire. And here the issue has to be faced squarely, although I understand and appreciate that that is difficult. The reality is that the American empire has peaked and is now declining. The data for this are overwhelming, as is the urgent tendency to deny it among people who find it frightening, which I understand. But I'm going to give you some of the signs to make sure we all understand it. I'll start with a small one and it'll get larger as we go. The tiny Central American country of Honduras recently decided to end its diplomatic relationships with the island of Taiwan and recognize as China the mainland. There are about 170, 80 countries in the world. 
only a dozen of which still recognize Taiwan as a separate sovereign entity. A dozen of which the United States is one. A dozen, even Honduras. Think a minute what this suggests. Then there was the announcement a very few weeks ago made by a smiling Chinese foreign minister that a reconciliation of sorts had been achieved between two traditional enemies in the Middle East, Iran on the one hand and Saudi Arabia on the other. Countries virtually at war, although by proxy often wrapped up in the Sunni versus Shiite struggles within Islam. They were going to establish embassies in each other's capitals. They were going to lay down the weapons of war and try to work together for a broader peace in the war-riven Middle East. The United States was absent. It has been trying to build peace in the Middle East, at least that's what we've been told, and couldn't do it. The Chinese, an emerging new power in the world, did it. The importance and the symbolism are only deniable if it's too hard to face what's going on. And then there are the mistakes in the Ukraine war. Let me count several of them for you. Mistake number one, that you can keep pushing the boundaries of NATO, an alliance of the West, traditionally opposed to the Soviet Union, you can push them more and more up against and even into Russia. Well, you can't. You're going to have pushback. It's not going to be what you thought it would be. You made a mistake. Mm -hmm. The second mistake was to imagine that this would be a war between Ukraine, aided by the collective West, and Russia alone. Let me remind you all, Russia is a country whose GDP is about one and a half trillion dollars. The United States and Western Europe, allied against Russia with Ukraine, have a combined GDP of about 32 trillion dollars. One and a half versus 32. Mistake. This is going to be easy. Russia will be crushed. Uh-uh. <laughs> Didn't happen. Isn't going to happen. Require way more involvement by the West than was ever understood. Mm. Now in the neighborhood of 100 to 150 billion dollars and counting. Escalation after escalation 
without the promised result, turns out Russia has very powerful friends helping Russia be a much more important foe. These are too many mistakes that come out of a mentality that doesn't want to face that the world has changed. The vast majority of countries in the world, particularly those in the global south, are not particularly moved by the West's complaints about Russia. They're not taking sides in that conflict beyond an obligatory vote and an obligatory statement that peace would be better than war. The United States has been unable to marshal anything like a global consensus around its position. These are all signs of empire decline. If I had more time, I'd go into other signs. The challenges to the U.S. dollar as global currency. The fact that Iran and Saudi Arabia will provide the energy needs of China in the indefinite future on an extraordinary scale. Shifting the balance of fossil fuel power for sure. The fourth and the final question about the new economic order is different because it's not a fact about what's happening. It's a question. What happens next? And these are the questions that are going to be the questions that we try to answer and how we try. By we, I mean the human race. How we try to answer these questions will shape the future we live in. Number one, will the declining American empire be replaced by a rising Chinese empire? That's the question. Just like the question at the end of the Roman or Greek or Persian or Ottoman or British empire was what empire comes next? Or another question. Will the question be that we create instead of another empire, that the human race grows up and says, we don't need and we don't want sequential empires. What we need and want is a multinational, multipolar world. We really need a world in which lots of different countries, larger, smaller, individual grouped, work out a livable arrangement for all on this planet with its limitations. That's a big question. The ecological movements are struggling from their end to answer it around nature and environment. But the political forces, the national forces, the economic realities are just as important in changing and shaping the questions and the answers. The economic growth of China in the last 40 years, that other part of neoliberal globalization that wasn't just about Western capitalists making a lot of money in the East, 
for what it would mean for the people of the East and by extension of the global South, we are now realizing the enormous economic power of the Chinese and the Indians and indeed all of those countries we label BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. A powerful new pole in world development. And the last question, and the, in the end, the most important one, that we will be answering and that will shape the future we see in the new world economy. And that question is, will the kinds of friction and change and difficulty of this phase of capitalist development, this moving of its old centers and the creation of new centers, will it have the effect of agitating, mobilizing, and educating a global working class. I end with that because I think it's the most important thing to leave with you. We have had 40 years of a traumatic change in the global capitalist system. That's what this program today has summarized or tried to. But along the way, we have really put the working classes of the world through the ringer. In China, we took hundreds of millions of rural people and put them into urban coastal cities, transforming everything about their lives. Of course, there's going to be trauma and upset and reconfiguring ways of living and being. The working class of China is going through a transformation in decades that took Europeans centuries. Yeah, that will agitate your working class. But look also at the United States and Western Europe. For the last 40 years, the middle class wrecked. The inequality made much worse. Tiny groups, two, four, six percent, of super wealthy people and a mass of people having a harder and harder time. And then on top of it, an economic crash in 2020, a global pandemic that was horrid in its effects, and then an inflation, and now rising interest rates, all of that crammed into a historical short period of time. Of course, the French people are in the streets. They're always among the first to go there. And the German workers and the women in Iran and fill in the blank. There are many more. And the militancy of the labor movement rediscovered in this country. The question is, will this working class turmoil congeal into its own notion of where the future lies. Because if they do, they will be able not only to reshape the world economy as it emerges, but they might be able to finally realize their dream of an economic system that didn't 
position, a tiny number of people at the top, making all the decisions, gathering the wealth and shaping the world economy to their It might finally mean a world economy shaped in the desire of what most of the people living in it would prefer. That too is on the horizon as a possibility. Thank you for your attention. And as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Okay, let me just read this really quick. Uh, Before I do, um, we had a little chat with Captain Randy on the conference call, and he mentioned that Kesh is shutting down all his operations in Europe because the European countries stuck to their old ways and got invited by China to come and move uh, his entire operation to Beijing. And they are going to give him trillions of dollars. And he will be bringing out up to 30,000 or more new technologies of peace. And China signed the declaration of peace required for this relationship to be uh, begin. So This is the denouement of the empire in a much bigger way and the rise of peaceful ways of the world. And China is the instigator. Yahoo! What an interesting day. So this is uh, our Dr. Teresa Bullard. (laughs) Wikey. And this is episode 24. It's called Expressing Our True Essence. We delve into working with people on a world stage, exploring the power of voice and the sound as the core of creation, uncover ways to understand our own consciousness, achieve a balance between doing and being, and unlock the key to magnetism. What's that? That's outside. Okay. (laughs) Um, Discover the art of creating flux from permanency. Living in the substance of life, connected to our feelings and reverence for life. Um, Watch this episode to expand your understanding and Embrace the Profound Mysteries of Existence with Dr. Teresa and Stuart Stuart Pierce on Quantum Minds TV. And so here we go. Let's just do this. Mm. Here we go, Rama. I wanted a place for people to receive authentic guidance and practical ways to awaken This is about expanding our human consciousness to create a wave of new possibilities. I'm Dr. Teresa Willard-Weig, and this is Quantum Minds TV. Welcome back to Quantum Minds TV, where we take a deep dive into various perspectives on what it's going to take to create a shift in human consciousness. 
On this episode, we are continuing the conversation with author, master of voice, and angelic emissary, Stuart Pierce. Well, and that, that brings us also to some of the work that you do, both when you worked with the Shakespeare Globe Theater, as well as much of your work with, you know, people who are on a, you know, in positions of leadership or meeting the public speakers and you're this voice alchemist and, you know, this master of how to use the voice in a way that really delivers the message. And, you know, if we go to just for a moment to your time at the uh, Shakespeare Globe, you really helped people, the actors, to not just play a role, but really deliver a compelling performance and, you know, something that moves people. So it's, it's, it was more, I could say, even embodiment, you know, helping them to embody the archetype of the character or even perform like an archetype magic uh, that really brings the presence and the energy and the, the vibration, the resonance in. Um, and you, you have kind of carried that over as well, it sounds like, to your work with other people who are very notable people uh, who are also on that world stage in some way or the CEO in the boardroom who are also trying to deliver their message. So how has uh, how voice um, and your work with them to especially accentuate or really feel into the essence and the, the archetypal energies that they're wanting to deliver? How do you work with them in that way? Lovely, lovely question. At the core of my work is the belief that sound is a core of creation. Mm-hmm. And of course, we see this in all of the varying vessels that we relate to. It's the work of science. We talk about the Big Bang, not the big science. 13.9 billion years ago, whatever it was. Um, the actor, his or her voice is absolutely crucial because it's one of the core mechanisms that they use to communicate the richness of what's going on within to the outside. Many of us who stand on the outside, we see it as performance. The true actor doesn't see themselves as a performer. They see themselves as a player. And that playing is about a deep, deep core reality within their creative energies. It's more about being than doing. The performer do. The the player is being. And so it's a conundrum within acting, because obviously acting means action, means doing. So we can use this as a paradigm to understand our, our own consciousness. But the last thing that we need to do is to do, 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 do. Otherwise, we just become control freaks and we become burned out and hyperadrenalized. But if we balance doing with being, if we really look for the inner impulse of why am I beingness, what do I want to achieve? How does this feel? We move on to a deeper premise and a deeper promise, which is that at the core of great acting is a truth of feeling statement. Mm-hmm. It's all about that in simplicity. That's the thing that magnetizes you, whomever we are, to watching the TV, watching the film, watching stage performance, watching, watching, watching. But what creates presence within the individual that magnetizes us to them. So what I've done, I'm a behaviorist. I'm a complete autodidact. I've learned this by living and experiencing. 
And for example, what I mean by that is that in my role, both as training young ones in a conservatoire situation, which I did for nearly 20 years, and then graduated to Shakespeare's Blur, because it was time to reconstruct the project that was a recreation or a reconstruction, I should say, of what the theatre was about in 1597 that contained the great works of Shakespeare. Now, even in the building of that, that everything was absolutely organic and in relationship to the times. So what we did was to find woodsmen and master craftspeople who knew what the techniques were that brought about the creation of that building. There isn't one nail used, for example. All the wood is fitted into mortars and tenon joints. The idea is that although it looks permanent, it can be taken apart at any point and moved somewhere else. So there is the the absolute crux of the vital change aspect, or as we see today, the instability of our lives. How do we create flux from permanency? Mm. And then we go down to what they were wearing on stage because there was uh, a tenet in our work, in our constitution, that we would have modern practice productions of Shakespeare and original practice. And I was employed specifically with the with the view of original practice. Modern practice can do anything, wear, wear whatever clothes and approach the playing of those words and the building of those relationships and situations from a very modern perspective of how we live our lives today. But as soon as we move into original practice, we worked with a master craftsperson or a mistress craftsperson, um, who this wonderful designer called Jenny Tiramani, who researched the clothes that they wore 450 years ago from the great portraits and found people around the world that still are able to create everything by hand. <laughs> no Velcro, no zippers. Everything, going all the way down to the underdrawers, the under undergarments. No Marks and Spencers or Janet Rager. No, absolutely. <laughs> the fabric that was used was fabric that was worn at that time. All of the dyes were vegetable dyes. And interestingly, most of the time, to, to create the architecture of the way that the women wore the, their clothes, they would be often pinned into the clothes. And that's one of the reasons why they had this stomacher, which was this wrapped uh, circular uh, piece of fabric around their, their midriff, which was also a symbol of the divine feminine. And the fabric of the, of the dress would fall over it. So you couldn't put your hands down, otherwise your hands would be sort of like this. You held your hands like so. So you were always in a position of reverence and veneration of prayer. Wow. It goes right into, the, but you see, we're going back into a culture, this is before the rise of literacy, it's before the noise, it's before the machines. Mm. We live through a culture of noise. Mm. So no wonder we're running around and talking in our heads like this, because there's so much noise and we want to get over the noise. As opposed to really living in the substance of what is most essential about us, which is our heart and the way that we feel, because feeling is the act of so. So by observing, by being, you know, I call myself a behaviorist, was I sat for hours and hours and hours in rehearsal rooms and other, other situations, watching people present. And of course, we all know that if we present inauthentically, which we often do because we doubt ourselves, we don't feel worthy, 
But what we tend to do is we show off and we perform. It's much more difficult, perhaps, because of the way that we've been educated and conditioned to come deep into the very core of the way that human beings feel in remarkable situations. And that's what makes great theatre. In, in, you know, to sum it up, to encapsulate, to do with something that Mark, this extraordinary actor who's considered by his profession as the leading actor of today, Sir Mark Rylance. But Mark is a human angel. And so he and I were able to dance together in the creation of his extraordinary work. And we created together something called the magnetic voice, which he is an extraordinary exponent of. And now making big movies for Spielberg is being sought after by a lot of the American actors who said, how does he do that? What is he? What, what, how does he? And I said, he's not doing it. He's being it. Yeah. Because yeah. acting holds a mirror up to nature, do you see? I just looked at the thesis of the experience of what acting is all about, made sense of it. And I take it into other situations because it's a beautiful beautiful paradigm for us all that we're all living as actors on a stage but are we living in the performance and showing off and being grandiloquent and egocentric or are we actually really living our souls mm. are we living the impulse of what our essence is really all about? Mm. so maybe really like for anyone who's who's presenting or delivering you know some kind of a message to you know, when we're delivering it just from the intellect or just from the mind, it it you know it, it only it doesn't really sink in and and penetrate into the person's being. But when they shift into the the heart space, the soul space, in like and really embody the feeling of it, they be it. Now the energy is delivered, and the message isn't just through the words. There's a, there's another essence, a vibration that comes. And you know resonates within the soul of the the receivers or the people who are you know watching uh, this performance. Yes, I think you've summed up excellently, uh, excellently rather, uh, particularly in the token of when they delivered the information. And I would say that we actors, if we're worth our salt, we say we share the information which is a very different experience. The delivery is an external form. Is this okay? Is this right? Uh, and the sharing is, I'm experiencing something here, and I feel that it's quintessential. I feel that I give the responsibility of sharing this with you, that by sharing this with you, I may just falter the way you perceive your days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And there lies redemption, you see. So the beginning of the play sets up the situation and the complexity. The middle of the play dives into the complexity and sometimes a tremendous amount of psychological dilemma. And then by the time we reach the end of the play, we're literally being lifted up through a process of redemption. Jack marries Jill and all should be well. Let's take a pause from this fascinating conversation to enjoy a quick consciousness break. Well, hi. Thank you for joining me for this book reading of The Game Changers, Social Alchemists in the 21st Century. This chapter is called Entering the Age of Conscious Evolution. These are remarkable times insofar as the pace of change is speeding up. And just about everywhere we look right now, accelerated change is afoot. What is all this change about? 
why now, and how do we best adapt? These are the questions that are explored in this book. We are witnessing the old systems and limiting structures of the previous millennia's outdated paradigms crumbling down around us. And as the old systems break down, people are being stripped of their comfort zones and are rising up in despair and anger. From the heads of governments, to people in the workplace, to children playing on the street, to family matters, and there is great uncertainty of what tomorrow will bring. And due to the advancements in technology and various social media platforms, there are new and powerful pressures on the status quo, contributing to the accelerated pace of change. Amidst this seeming chaos, there is a light of hope emerging. As the saying goes, great chaos precedes great growth. The system failure is giving way to a new time of reassessing what is truly of essence. What must we salvage? What is corrupting the system that we must discard? And what kinds of new innovations, methods, and sustainable solutions do we want to replace these with? One of the things that um, I really want to explore into before our, our time runs out is that uh, you know, we've talked a bit about some of the devolution that is happening, uh, the regression or almost like a retrograde, like the earth is going into a retrograde um, itself, like where we're devolving in it. If we see it in the entertainment world, we see it in our politics, we see it, you know, in social narratives and so forth. There's like this kind of reversal devolution that's happening. And, uh, you know, your experience with, with the Shakespearean work is that is so archetypally based. And, and you mentioned that, um, I mean, when we, when any one of us hear like a well-performed Shakespearean play versus what we watch maybe in today's, you know, kind of mainstream live streaming on Netflix, right? The, the quality is, they're incomparable. I mean, the quality of, of these uh, more ancient works or Shakespearean times, Elizabethan uh, golden age times, uh, it's so much richer, and and yet and today it's it's just uh, quantity versus quality, and and I, I was you know I want to talk about that, and I also want to talk about you, you had mentioned the four archetypes that show up again and again and again in the Shakespearean work, and this sort of evolution that happens through these four archetypes. What are those four? Why are those four so important? And how do we evolve? through them uh, to come to a state of greater wholeness and um, embodiment. It's a lot, so go for it. <laughs> well, of course, the, 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 yeah, I haven't, I love this and I haven't thought about it for a long time, but the, I felt myself so steeped within rem remembering what it must have been like before the noise, what it must have been like before the machines in 1597, when the theatre uh, on South Bank first opened. Originally, it was in the northern part of the city, still within the city walls, in an area called Shaw Ditch, which is an interesting part of the city of London. And then it was moved by the, the players, <clears throat> by James Burbage and his mayor. Um, and the Lord Mayor of London said that we would go to the theatre to hear the play. Whereas today we speak of going to see the play. So we talk mm -hmm. about spectators. 
rather than audio hurts. So they heard sound in a different way because noise was not around. I mean, you have the noise of the cartwheel, the noise maybe we call, and hopefully it's harmonic, of the church bell, which ordered the day. Because nobody wore these things. Or the you know, sundial, et cetera, et cetera. They, they were alive in their bodies and in association with Mother Earth and with the essential medieval belief of the anima mundi, the animating principle of the universe, which, of course, today we call Prama or Chi, or may the force be with you. Um, and so the Lord Mayor of London said in 1597, I think his name was Richard Green, all speech is decorated sense. Now, when you think about that, that's extraordinary. And, of course, we've all had that experience of being in the depth of nature, and there is no traffic noise or electrical pollution. And we hear our voices in a completely different way. Or being right out at sea or on the top of a mountain. It's a completely different experience. So our sound making is uniquely different. We go deep, deep, deep into the visceral experience of what it is to feel and share the way that we feel for the prima motive, the prima generative of our beings, which is to connect and to connect with meaning. And so when you consider that the audience at that time, only an 8% of the population could read. So if we can't read, you hear words in a completely different way because you don't have any, any word images in your consciousness. You have symbols and illustrations, but it works in a very different way. And of course, there is a magic within Shakespeare's words, which is why we're still speaking them meaningfully, I hope, uh, that spells... We literally become spellbound. And in the practice of working this theatre, we noticed that for the first 10 years of its creation, that our, our audience would be a population of 93% box office success. And you think, wow, that's pretty good, because the West End was doing something like 35% success through an aggregate of all the different theatres, the main theatres in the West End. And it's only for a six-month summer season because it's open air and it's too cold to stand there in the in the middle of winter listening to um, you know actors on a stage. I know that this was done it because the Globe Education Department would take over for the winter, and I was one of the prime people that were there. Was a whole team of us that worked the edu the vast educational department where ninety five thousand school children go through the Globe every year. And then, of course, I would deal with the undergraduates or the postgraduates who were fascinated. I created a conservatory in the theatre for young American actors who would come from Rutgers University in New Jersey and spend 26 weeks or whatever in London working at the theatre. Um, so we begin to realise that there was a totally different experiential about the way that those words worked. However, the paradigm that I wanted to offer was that the majority of their 93% of box office success was based on something like 60% or 65% of foreign nationals who possibly could not understand because they were, maybe they had, well, obviously English is a second language, maybe it's a third language, but you're dealing, as you were saying earlier, with heightened language. To be or not to be, that is the question. We don't speak like this today. Mm. And of course, it has a certain rhythm, which is the rhythm of a heartbeat. However, how is this useful to us today? So it brings us into an understanding that right at the very core of the success of these spelling plays is 
are a series of compounds. So all of the plays are based on the Kabbalistic tree of life or the Rosicrucian tree of life, because the people who wrote them, and I don't believe it was William Shakespeare, a humble glove maker from Warwickshire. I believe that William Shakespeare is actually a Mondi plume for Will I Am, Shakespeare. Will I Am, which is after all what we're doing today. We're learning the great I Am. So I Am is brought about through Will. Will I Am. Shakespeare, the image of Pallas Athena, who the goddess of wisdom and the goddess of war, who is always seen with her spear. And so if she's shaking her spear at us, she's wanting to disturb us. If the spear is still and she's smiling, then automatically we feel as though we're being enraptured by the divine. So there are there are these interesting poetic elements that lie within. And as you were saying, uh, within the body of the writings, not only is there the tree of life, but also there are four essential archetypes that keep popping up. The lover, the warrior, the sovereign, and the magician. And so each person who is significant, meaning each person who is iconic within the play, the major characters, is moving through a sequence of understanding what these roles, what these archetypes reveal to them about their essential consciousness, the totality of the individuation process, as we call it today. So if we relate these to a contemporary frame, such as the young princes, Prince Harry and Prince William, Prince William and Prince Harry. Firstly, they were these beautiful young men, these lovers. And then we saw them join the army and they became practiced warriors, not professional soldiers, but at the core of their work was the understanding of duty, was the understanding of team effort, of being a member within the organism, which is known as the regiment or the battalion or whatever, etc., etc. And then, as we see them now, they're moving into the role of sovereign. They may not have literal crowns on their heads, but certainly we see William being groomed to eventually take over from his father. Um, I think Charles is obviously going to assume he's going to have the crown put on his head, but this is a man that's waited for over 17 years and is not really interested. He's much more interested in how he can heal the planet, mm. and he will use the road to heal the planet. Mm. Uh, Parry, on the other hand, has become a displaced sovereign because he's chosen to take his bride to the birthplace of her emission into the, into the consciousness of humanity and find his own kingdom and is doing an extraordinary job of creating that kingdom through the emancipation and the liberty of all human beings, and therefore moves into the high priestess or the high priest, the magician, becomes truly magical. Um, so that's just a very sort of watered, watered down illustration of how these archetypes keep popping up. Uh, within the plays, and they are useful to us today. What my great colleague, Lynn McDonald, who is the master of movement, although she's a lady, we were always using the masculine generic, which was based on the fact that in the craft skills, the, the apprentices would be employed at the age of 14, sometimes younger, and they would work for a journey person for seven years and learn the basic skills of whatever the craft was. And then 
they would be tested and work for another seven years on a higher degree, and then they would be tested and they would meet the master, and they would work with the master for seven years. So after 21 years, they could possibly be elected to being a master. So being a master means that you have durability. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you have a laurel around your head. It means that you just simply have explored moments of downfall and moments of excellence, moments of wrongdoing, moments of right doing, moments of um, rejection and moments of triumph. Mm-hmm. So that skill becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. But all masters, particularly at that time, believe that they had a guardian angel called a genie. And it was the genie that gave them the genius to create. Mm-hmm. So they were always allowing the excellence of their deliberation, their sharing, their their craft skills, their excellence to become part of the divine harmony of the cosmos. So with these with these four major archetypes, you said they're a progression for us to evolve towards greater wholeness, integration, mastery. Um, and and so, can you do you think you could summarize really quickly because they also play in our roles, not just in these. You know these these plays. You know by Shakespeare, they they are. I think he was communicating something to us about the importance of that uh, journey of individuation and uh, self realization. And if we are all progressing through these four stages, um, what would be the key lessons that each of those four stages delivers that it wants us to learn? And then you know how can we assess like well where am I at with this progression? So that I can also look at where do I need to be so that I can progress forwards and, and keep moving through the stages. Well, if we look at the arousal of the contemporary initiate, and when I say that, I mean the person that is awakening to the fact that they have soul, they have spirit, and they wish to live their lives as a spiritual being having a human experience rather than a human being having religious experience. There is the awakening of the lover because we begin to realize that there is an intelligence within us and without us that is infinitely greater than we in the in these four school years and ten <laughs> that Shakespeare speaks of. Except we um, we know that we are part of you know divine splendor is within us. So we are stars wrapped in skin. So we become lovers. And then as soon as this takes place, we begin to realize that our ego, which is often caught in glamour in our lover archetype, needs to be exercised and is often exercised by those people around us, by the communities that we fall into or move into, that we rise into, that we rise to love into rather than fall in love into. And we're challenged. So we have to become warriors which means that we become spiritual warriors where we have to be absolutely acute with our own truth and not live out the glamour existence of, oh, by the way, did you notice that crystal? Isn't that amazing? You know, I call that spiritual prophetic. <laughs> it's more about, you know, what does the crystal's vibration help you rather than acquire, 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 acquire so that I can impress you. And so as a result of that, we're really exercised and, of course, Along comes the shadow complex in the warrior stages. So we're taken into the long dark night of the soul. Mm. And when we're taken there, it's tragic and it's visceral and it's cathonic 
and it's deeply disturbing. But of course, along comes somebody who is kind and says, all conditions are temporary. You will get through this. This is an endurance test. Well done. Keep going. Keep going. It's shit at the moment, but just keep going. So we become sovereign. The I am presence brings us into our sovereignty. Now, this is not an idea. This is a literal experience. Because after all, in the long dark night of the soul, in the warrior status, we're taken to the very quick of our beings because we're on the verge of death. It may be moral death. It may be emotional death because we have to give up the codependency and move away from those people that have been toxic in our lives, even our dear, you know, so-called dear ones, our family. And we realize that our soul family is what we crave because they're being really seen and we're compromised. So we move them into the ability to bring in the mission. In simplicity, in these few moments of sharing with you, that's what can muster. But you know, you've, you've introduced me to a question that um, I have never actually been asked before within this contemporary context. I've thought about it, as you can hear, but I've never been asked. So I will think on that, and maybe I can come up with even greater explanations. Your next book, perhaps. <laughs> maybe. maybe. Join us again as we continue to dive deeper into this fascinating conversation with Stuart Pierce on the next episode of Quantum Minds TV. This conscious conversation was created, produced, and recorded by Dr. Teresa buller boyk in collaboration with Stuart Pierce and edited by Verse Content on HH Films and Photo. The theme music and intro video are produced by Tim Mountain of Evil Mode Productions. Quantum Minds TV is a product of the Quantum Learning Academy. Teresa Ballard and Mr. Pierce. <laughs> this is uh, an ongoing saga here. This is wonderful. So I was going to talk a little bit about the astrology for today. This is Tanya Gabrielle, and she says, Seven easy tips for Mars opposite Saturn, which is today. Happy birthday, Rama. Thank you. <laughs> so it says here today, Mars is exactly opposite Saturn. Quite an intense activation. As you feel a bit weaker, physically and emotionally, take a rest so you can preserve, persevere, excuse me, through any challenges or frustrations. The key to this transit is the gaining of strength from within. Any delays or restrictions and pent-up tension is asking to be released, especially in silence or on your own, rather than you directing the energy at others. Fortunately, there is support. And we go on here. To help you stay in control of your emotions, take actions through physical exercise or any vigorous workouts. In celestial realms, the sun trines Neptune today as well, enhancing your intuition, creativity, and spiritual insights. Both the lovely trine and extended physical workouts 
will will transform and dissipate the tension in Mars opposite Saturn for the next couple of days. Overall, it's a good idea to immerse yourself in an activity that yields productive results, preferably instantly. Mm-hmm. A shadow side to Mars, impatience, opposite Saturn, delays, is that you want to know for sure in order to have control. So, you give everything a definition and a label. This creates limitations. So, as you say, I know what that is. It's a rose. And that's the end of it. There is no need to explore deeper, to feel, sense, look beyond the word. One of the exciting breakthroughs unleashed with Saturn opposite Mars is, instead of defining, labeling, and eventually evaluating and spinning stories about a rose, a person, yourself, drop into not knowing. Life is meant to be unpredictable. No one knows what the next moment will bring. What you can be certain of is your role in creating the frequency you want to experience in this present moment. This Saturn-Mars opposition urges you to focus on what frequency you want. For example, as confronted with a challenge, no matter what, you always can breathe deeply and immediately say, this is going to work out far better than I can imagine. No matter how you feel, you can invoke. This situation is going to be to my advantage. A good way to balance the opposition energy is to use your strong concentration abilities, Saturn, to passionately engage in a project that is oriented toward a specific goal, Mars. Like organize your environment, bring plants and flowers into your indoor space, move your body, thank the universe for all the blessings in your life. Raise your frequency consistently by remaining open and filled with wonder. Mars opposite Saturn is also the perfect time to check your name as you take responsibility for the direction your life is taking now. Your name is one of the most powerful assets you have when it is fortunate. Just like the daily star codes affect your everyday you every day, your current name has a major impact on your life as well. And learn the power of the positive thoughts about all the numbers and the words and the letters in your name. Make sure that the current name adds up to a fortunate frequency. Good news, time for change is at hand. And so I am going to pass this talking stick to my sister Rainbird for wise words uh, 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 after this evening and final word about happy birthday to Rama, I would think. Pass the talking stick to you, Rainbird. Rainbird? Mm -hmm. 
Hello? Rainbird? Are you there? I am here. Can you hear me? Now we can hear you. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> okay. I got to turn my radio off. Hang on. Hang on a second. Okay. I'm, not, I'm getting it. <laughs> oh, did you hear that? <laughs> okay. Oh, my gosh. Wise words. You know what? I can hardly stay awake the last hour. So I can have anything wise to say at all. <laughs> so, well, I'm just really happy that Roma has a birthday today, and I'm going to pass this talking to you, Roma. Here it comes. Okay, thank you. So, this, what do we got for? What have we got? This is called uh, the Eternal Ecstasy, Rumi. Love. 
If I were offered a kingdom and the world's riches were placed at my feet, I would bow with my face low and say, this does not compare to his love. is the pure wine, my life is the cup. Without your wine, what use is this cup? I once had a thousand desires. But in my one desire to know you, all else melted away. The pure essence of your being has taken over my heart and soul. Now there is no second or third only the sound of your sweet cry. Through your grace, I have found a treasure within myself. I have found the truth of the unseen world. I have come upon the eternal ecstasy I have gone beyond the ravages of time. I have become one with you. Now, my heart sings. I am the soul of the world. From my first breath, I have longed for him. This longing has become my life. This longing has seen me grow old. But one mention of Shamsita Breeze and all my youth comes back to me. Rumi, everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to read just the verse or two from the song that Penny played last night. Mama's okay. going to try to play a little verse of it today, tonight. This is called, This is my song, O God, of all the nations. Excuse me. I'm just going to pull this a little closer. Um, a song of peace for lands afar and mine. This is my home, the country where my heart is. Here are my hopes, my dreams, my holy shrine. Yet other hearts in other lands are, are, are beating when hopes and dreams are true and high as mine. You got it, Rama? Let him play just a verse. I'll do that. Okay. Here we go, everybody. It's four minutes. Okay.
our song everyone thank you rama for coming into subways whoops <laughs> thank you everyone for coming into uh this time with us to celebrate with rama and thank you rama for being in all of our lives thank you rama thank you all Get right <laughs> <laughs> inshallah stop now stop now Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. No, le- no evil. Live long and prosper. See you in your dreams and on the bridge. Ta-ta, everyone. Aloha.